88.1 FM, the wireless weather. We'll be in touch. To find out more, go to tntradio.live. Grant Edwards, 88.1 FM, the wireless. 88.1 FM, the wireless weather. Well, good morning, everybody. Five past four, and uh, let's check out that weather and see what's going on. See whether or not it's going to be a good day or not. Well, uh, I just have to turn that, that volume down just a wee bit loud for me. I don't know about you. Anyway, that's a bit better. Okay, um, now where are we? Weather. We are at Met Service. Yes, and it's uh, you'll find that at metservice.com. And uh, we've got the extremes today. The highest temperature is Culverden. Would you believe that? Twenty-three minutes. No, no. <laughs> Twenty. 23.2 degrees today. O, um, Omarama has the lowest temperature, which is quite often is low. In fact, the lowest temperature they've ever got down to was 9.7, minus 9.7, that is. This morning it's 13.1. Wellington Lyle Bay, 28 kilometres of wind per hour there. And um, we've got uh, Mount Cook. Mount Cook is the wettest place with 4.8 millimetres of rain. Temperatures right across the country. I still find that a wee bit loud, don't you? It's a bit annoying. Yeah, I'll just bring it right down there. That's better. That's better, Grant. Okay, temperatures right across the country. And we've got Stewart Island on 18 along with Chatham Islands. Invercargill 15, Dunedin this morning. Good morning to you down there. And Dunedin 17 degrees. Timaru, howdy, howdy. 15 degrees for you. Christchurch 17 along with Blenheim. Oh, yeah, I remember that trip from Blenheim to Nelson every day when I was working down that way back in, ooh, 1995 it was. Yeah, I loved it. Loved it. Had a wonderful car too. Now, what was my vehicle? That was a, not a Fiat, a Fix It Again Tony. It was a Renault RX21. Best car, actually one of the best handling cars I've ever had. Had an Alf engine. Loved it. And I loved that trip from Nelson to Blenheim. Except when a fellow pulled out in front of me and I had a head-on collision with the range of having been checked over. No, we were all right. We got there. It was quite good. Um, got got some insurance payout for that one. Yeah, this guy whacked into me. He was turning turning right. Didn't see us coming. We were on our way out of Nelson. And he was turning right, I think, to go to the port. And uh, I just couldn't stop in time. I was pretty close. Anyway, but we were all right. Bit of a sore neck and we were fine. Anyway, back to the back to the weather. Um, we have got in Nelson, we've got uh, 20 degrees down there uh, and 17 in Blenheim. Westport's on 20 degrees as well, so it's quite nice and probably very muggy, I'd say. I wouldn't say it's warm and toasty this morning. 20 degrees also in Wellington and Masterton has uh, 18. Napier's on 20. Palmerston North, 22 this morning, along with New Plymouth. Uh, Rotorua's 18. Gisborne, 17. Hamilton 16, Auckland 20, Tauranga 21, and uh, Whangarei is also on 21, and Kairatai has 20. Now we've got some heavy rain warnings there in orange. Uh, we've got a few of those, so we'll better better just check that out. Uh, what does it say at the top there? We're going to have some, yeah, there are heavy rain warnings for red, orange, and, oh, unless that's just there to let me know what to go. Anyway, no, I've never seen that before, so... Okay, so uh, let's look at the short forecast. For Northland, first of all, Northland to Taranaki, including Coromandel and the Bay of Plenty. Cloudy periods today with isolated showers. For Wanganui to Horokanua, also for the central high country, mostly cloudy. Isolated showers developing this evening. Had a horrible thought then I hadn't put the mic on, but it is on. Because you don't have that red light. Like we used to have a red light that would come on and glow. The whole place would glow and you'd know you're on the air, you know. But here you don't. <laughs> I've looked down there, I've gone for like five minutes with, uh, yeah, as you know. Uh, Wanganui to Horowanua, also central high country, mainly fine. Isolated showers this evening, especially north of Wanganui. 
Gisborne and Wairarapa generally fine though for you, so it looks okay out that way, out the east. Kapiti and Wellington though, partly cloudy with isolated showers from the evening. Um, in the South Island, Marlborough and Nelson, mostly cloudy with scattered showers in Nelson. For Buller and Westland, rain with heavy falls today. Uh, a few thunderstorms possible in South Westland and uh, in the Southern Westland, I should say, uh, this evening. And also tonight, for Canterbury and Otago and Southland, uh, you've got rain about the Canterbury high country. Elsewhere, a few showers with uh, rain becoming scattered during the day, but mostly dry for Canterbury Plains and Christchurch. In Fiordland, you can expect rain with some heavy falls, easing to showers later in the afternoon. And the Chatham Islands, you've got cloudy periods. The extended forecast for North Island tomorrow, Saturday, cloudy in Increasing, cloud increasing. In fact, I think there's a chance of a shower for Northland and Auckland. Uh, early late showers for the Bay of Plenty and Coromandel Peninsula. Partly cloudy elsewhere with a few showers, but dry for Gisborne. And in the South Island tomorrow, rain easing to a few showers from Buller and Nelson and Fiordland, and then clearing for Westland. You've got a few showers elsewhere, clearing. On Sunday in the north, you've got rain spreading south with possible heavy falls. But a few showers in the southwest. Uh, in the South Island on Sunday, partly cloudy with isolated showers in the north and the east coast and also Fiordland. Well, it doesn't look too bad there, but um, they were talking about, I was reading a news item just before we came on at five, when it's 11 minutes past. Sorry, gosh, but I can't believe it's so late. How come it's taken so long to get here? Unless the clock's wrong, at 10 past five. Gosh, I thought we'd normally be about five past and I'd be talking about weather. Here we are, 10 past five. Already. Uh, in the North Island on Monday, you've got rain clearing, but a few showers developing in the west. I think I said that, didn't I? Chatham Islands, your extended forecast for the South Island. <laughs> what am I talking about? I'd better have another slip of copy. Just, just bear with me. Mm. Ah, that'll fix it. Um, yes, extended forecast for Chathams. You've got mostly cloudy and northerlies. A chance of a shower on Sunday and then rain developing on Monday with gale northerlies possible. Okay, that is, uh, that's it for you. I suppose we'd better go and have a look at the newspapers, shall we? Oh, gosh, I don't know if I'm up to that this morning. Oh, goodness me. Uh, we'll, we'll, be there in a, we'll be there in a tick. Give us a couple of... Oh, how, two minutes is probably a bit too long, isn't it? Oh, you'll be right. Here, have a listen to this. This is fascinating. Like most globalists, Schwab regards communist China as a shining model of how he intends to transform the world. We now welcome His Excellency... Xi Jinping, China has made significant economic and social achievements under your leadership. Chinese influence on global affairs is growing. The founder of the World Economic Forum, Klaus Schwab, says that this is what motivated the group this year to invite President Xi Jinping to deliver the keynote address in Davos. Schwab said Xi's presence was a sign of the shift from a unipolar world dominated by the United States to a more multipolar system in which rising powers like China will have a step up and play a bigger role. I think it's um, a role model for many countries. But um, we have to go one step further. It's a systemic transformation of the world. Artificial intelligence, the metaverse, synthetic biology, our life in 10 years from now will be completely different. And who masters those technologies will be the master of the world.
I believe the natural order of the world is God, men, and women. And when we try to confuse women and say we're equal to men and that we have an ability, like that we should be able to control men, that's when evil I mean, happens. I don't think there's equality no, with no, men and women right, at all. Right, right. But, but, no, but I think we're supposed to submit to men's authority. And I think when we don't, that's when evil happens. And so typically when, when there's a dysfunction in the family, it's because the woman was trying to impose her will on the man. That's Pearl. Now, actually, it is um, that might have been slightly outdated forecast. So I'll just give you the update. The worst parts seem to be uh, in the South Island. I think we've got Buller and Westland rain with heavy falls. A few thunderstorms possible in southern Westland this evening and tonight. Uh, Canterbury, Otago, and Southland. You've got rain about the Canterbury high country. Elsewhere, a few spots of rain becoming scattered during the day, but mainly dry for Canterbury Plains. Yeah, this is weird because when I check the front page now, the latest news at rnz.co, it says West Coast's preparing for next deluge of heavy rain. Is this sort of like hypothetical or is this real? Civil Defence Council staff and other agencies are preparing for further rain on the West Coast with the next deluge expected to hit around mid-Friday. Well, that's not what Metsev is saying for that area. Uh, Buller and Westland, Marlborough and Nelson. Buller and Westland, oh, you rain with heavy falls. Oh, okay, yeah. <laughs> All righty. Okay, we're back over at uh, Radio New Zealand. It's 15 minutes past, quarter past five. Good morning to you. Hope it's all going well. Having a birthday today? Congratulations, 19th of January. Hope it's a good one for you all day. And you get lots of presents. It's always good to get presents, isn't it? Yes. Now, they are. They are warning staff. Uh, yeah, we talked about that. Um, and also, the South Island's west coast is in for a downpour. This is another heading with incredibly large amounts of rainfall expected. But they say they're ready for anything. They can hack it. Um, religious garments stolen from Wellington Church returned with an apology note. <laughs> Must have got the tatars. Probably thought, oh, I don't know. People can be superstitious too, you know. So you know, and often, often criminals are uh, superstitious. I find that's my experience over the years. You know, just just observation. After a um, desperate public plea, precious religious garments stolen from Wellington Church have been returned, complete with an apology note. Was that the one that uh, a, a um? She was a well-known sort of television figure. Was that her? I'll just have a quick skip through it. Uh, no, it's the Serbian Orthodox Church. It was just after it happened at about, I think, the CCTV, uh, CCTV footage that picks up around about 2 o'clock in the morning. Uh, it showed a trio wandering into the Serbian Orthodox Church on the parade in Island Bay. Priest Father Predrag Grubaki he said, that's what he told everyone anyway, after the desperate public plea, precious items have been re- returned. Well, that's nice. What have they got? They've got a robe and a cap. They were returned with an apology note. Well, that is nice, isn't it? So maybe they repented the Greek Orthodox. I don't know much about them. I don't. I really don't. I sort of can't sort of say too much. A lot of people like them. just seems like a stone throw away from Catholicism, you know, with all their... I mean, I'm looking at a photograph now, and it's all, you know, images and, you know, and the Bible says you're not to bring images into your home, you're not to at least you bow down and worship them. Um, they say that, you know, the adoration, adore, idol, mm, you know, I just, I don't know. Just stick to the Bible, you can't go too far wrong. What is the old Latin term? Sola Scriptura. Just stick to that. Don't go off 
don't go off track. I reckon just stay on that and just read that thing. But make sure you read it for yourself. That's pretty important. Other people telling you what it means. And when they say, no, what, you know, when you read that there, and what that means is, you know, when they say that, what that means is, don't listen to them. You just read it for yourself. Words have meanings. God's written it for us. And so it should be comprehensible, shouldn't it? It's not reasonable that he would give us his words in written format and they're not comprehensible. Uh, so, and they should be comp- comprehensive. They should be available to everybody. Everyone that wants to learn English. <laughs> if it's good enough for the Apostle Paul, the KJV is good enough for me. That's what we say. Mm. Anyway, I have no idea where the word, words of God in their entirety were before 1611, but I know where they are now. I've got one on my shelf, and uh, I've got one next to my bed, and I can read it whenever I like. Isn't that great? It's not this thing, you know, it's not this uh, this uh, invisible thing. People say, oh, well, the original Greek says, but they've got no idea. They've never seen the original Greek. What original Greek? You wouldn't know if you fell over it. <laughs> Why do people say that? I mean, you'd never, in a court of law, you'd just be thrown out. But Christians say, uh, the original Greek says, I like to go back to the original. They can't, they can't speak Greek. I actually can. <laughs> I can speak Greek. I can understand Greek. And um, so that's why I learned it, just to, hand, just to deal with people like this that think that, that imagine that um, their authority is in some Greek texts. And there's so many. Which one? <laughs> you know, which one do you want to choose from? There's about 24 different types of texts in Greek. Just Greek, and then there's all the other languages that the New Testament was written in as well. The problem seems to be in the New Testament. The Old Testament was pretty well preserved up until about 1936, and then Gerhard Kittel got hold of it. His father was a war criminal, I think. And, uh, you know, so why would you trust the Old Testament? Why why would you trust some German, some Nazi, with the Old Testament, you know, the, the Hebrew? Why would you trust them? But the Jews did a pretty good job of preserving the Old Testament, you know, until he got hold of it about 1936, I think. And so... Uh, but the old King James, that's got the um, that's got the got the good stuff in it. And the reason why I trust it is because I studied it for so long, and I'm thinking to myself, well, if I can find a provable error, not an apparent error, there's plenty of those in there, and I've looked at them all, you know. And we've we actually um, with our school, we got hold of um, uh, what's his name, um, Dennis McKenzie, McKenzie. And I think he might be dead now, I'm not sure. But he's an atheist, and um, he's a, he absolutely hates... He, I don't think he is an atheist, actually, because he hates God. <laughs> he hates Christians as well. And I'll, I'll guarantee you he's anti-Semitic. He'll hate the Jews as well. And um, he wrote a book called... I think he wrote, wrote a few books. So this is fellow, Dennis McKenzie, PhD. And we got hold of his book. We thought, well, we'd better go to the best. And he was the best at the time, uh, back in the late 90s when we were studying. And... There was about, it was a 900-page book, and it was called the uh, Encyclopedia of Biblical Errancy. There it was. 20 past five, too, by the way. Uh, and this book had, yeah, 900 pages full of, a, full, what he said were errors and contradictions in all the different versions. versions. He struggled a bit with the King James-only uh, people. Um, there were only really, after going through that entire book, there were only really about 100 that needed further study. They looked like errors. They were apparent errors. But when we went and studied them, our class, when we went there and really had a close look at them, we found that they weren't errors at all. In fact, they were absolutely perfect. 
And so that's one of the elements of the divine revelation, that it must be perfect at the word level, otherwise it can't be from God, can it? Because God is perfect. I mean, if Jesus is the word of God, the living word, and if he had looked at Mary Magdalene as to lust after her, if he just looked at her, um, that would be sin. Jesus said, if a man even look at a woman as to lust after her, he's committed adultery with her already in his heart. And so therefore he would not have been able to have been a sacrificial lamb, would he? He would not have been able to be the lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world because he had to be pure and without spot, just as it was forecast, uh, prophesied in many scriptures. But Isaiah 53 comes to mind and many others. And so he laid down his life for us and couldn't have done that. And so therefore the words of God must be perfect as well. And they're not up in heaven. They're here for us. Why would they be kept up in heaven that we can't get hold of? That's what people say. They say, oh, yeah, they're preserved forever in heaven. Uh, no, no, they're, they're here. He's got, they're available to us if we look. So you've got to find them. So what are the necessary elements of a divine revelation? Well, they must be available. I mean, what's the point of writing words and reducing them? Well, first of all, you would reduce those words to the written format. It's perfectly reasonable that God would do that so that generation after generation could could read the words. He only has to do it once then, doesn't he? And he only had to put it in English once, and he did that in 1611. Uh, we have English, as we know it today, is the 1611 King James English. And if you don't believe me, if you say, oh, well, the, the, these and those, well, that's biblical English. However, that's perfection. But if you look in the very front of the the dedicatory in the King James Bible, it says there was no these or those in it. So that's, they didn't actually speak like that. They later mimicked the, the uh, well, and even early, even before the King James, they would mimic uh, Bible language, you know, like, tis thine. Hello, e up, Grant, who's round is it? Oh, it's tis thine, you know, and uh, and so we were taught how, how great thou, thou art. You know, it's nothing weird, but it's uh, the most simple English to understand. It's the easiest, actually. People say, oh, I want a book that's easy to read. I, want, I don't want to buy it, get the King James, because it's too hard. It's actually not too hard. Well, as a publisher, we put it through the Flesh King K grade level indicator, and it came out very low, because it's pretty much one and two syllable Anglo-Saxon words that God has used in 1611. And it came out seven years to put together, and, of course, the Roman Catholic Church tried to stop it. The devil <laughs> tried to stop it. Uh, 1604, was it, or 5? Um, remember, remember the uh, 5th of November, gunpowder, treason, and plot. So that was being written right at, the, right at that time. Uh, 1605, I think it was. Gosh, I can't remember. 1605, pretty sure it was. And they tried to blow up Parliament. Basically tried to take over, the Catholic uh, Catholics tried to take over England, and that was treason, and that's why they were killed, uh, hung, drawn, and quartered, uh, just as a warning. <laughs> they were done that. They did that not because they were Roman Catholics, and they were never persecuted. They were allowed to even well after that. They were they were executed for treason because their first allegiance, the first allegiance of a Roman Catholic, is not with his country; it is with the Pope. So, how, why would we ever accept a Roman Catholic? Prime Minister, which we have done on many occasions, on a few occasions anyway, here in New Zealand, there should be no Roman Catholics if their first allegiant, allegiance is with a foreign power, which the Vatican is. It's a foreign power. And so there should be no Roman Catholics in politics 
in our country, in our House of Representatives, shouldn't be allowed to be there. And that's why in 1688, a, the Bill of Rights was passed, which gave all of us the right to bear arms, but if not if you're a Roman Catholic. And this was written about 86 years after the gunpowder plot. And so it was written there so because they didn't they knew the tyranny of Rome that they, there might be another uprising from them. So it wasn't some knee-jerk reaction, this 1688 Bill of Rights, which are still part of our law today. So if you go on legislate.gov.nz, you'll find the 1688 Bill of Rights, and you'll find there that Roman Catholics aren't allowed to bear arms. So therefore, you could take a case against the, um, who would it be, the Attorney General and the police for issuing Roman Catholics with firearms licences because it goes against the Bill of Rights 1688. And you think, well, you can't use that? I mean, gosh, New Zealand was formed well after that, wasn't it? 1840, we became sort of, uh, well, we had a treaty anyway. That's not the beginning of our country. Um, but you could, you could argue that they should have their uh, weapons, well, our weapons, <laughs> let's face it, they could have, should have their firearms removed from them if they're Roman Catholics, according to that law. And you think, oh, that's, that's weird, that, that, that's been repealed, surely. No, it hasn't been repealed. It's still there, and it's been used. In 1984, it was used against Rob Muldoon, not the one about firearms, but another, the 1688 Bill of Rights was used, and the man, I think he was a lawyer, won his case. So you can look it up, 1688, Bill of Rights, Rob Muldoon, Google that, and you'll find the case. I can't quite recall the details of it. Something to do with, um, no, I can't recall the details of it. There's a few of them. So it's still part of our law. So therefore, what's all this business that um, having to have a firearms license when each of us, if we're not Roman Catholics, have the right to bear arms? So why, why did we allow them to uh, give us a license? when the Bill of Rights, which is part of our Constitution, says we don't need a licence. Why are we allowing that to happen? And then and all the metering of it, you see, these fees as well. It's mostly mostly the, uh, money. Bring in more income, isn't it? That's what it's usually about. Anyway, so we did get a wee bit off the track there, Grant, didn't you? Yes, well, uh, I will be back in just a moment and um, see if I've got some news that you might be interested in, you may not be interested in religious sort of stuff. And, but I find it quite interesting, all that business about, you know, the Bill of Rights. You know, why do we have a Bill of Rights? Why don't we just repeal the whole lot? Maybe they can't. And why aren't we using it? And why are we allowing bureaucrats to take away our freedoms that we already have? 88.1 FM, The Wireless, New Zealand News. Oh, it's New Zealand news, is it? Oh, well, okay, well, I better, better give you some news then. All right, let's do that. Now, um, yep, that, now, they say the West Coast is preparing for the next deluge of heavy rain, don't they? That's what they say. But I say it's not going to be that bad. Then we had the religious garments, and then are we not, that's how, <laughs> then are we not onto a tangent, uh, didn't I? Now, why do people shoplift? That's a very interesting thing. So I think sometimes it could be something to do with uh, just the thrill of it, you know, just the thrill of... Uh, of um, uh, see if you can get away with it could be that 
There's a lot of psychology behind it and different reasons. And um, you can guarantee... Now, what they have found, uh, Rudy Giuliani, he was the mayor of New York, and he found that... Uh, he actually had a zero tolerance for uh, any form of criminality, even minor misdemeanors. He'd pick you up for that. And he found that if you'd break minor misdemeanors, you'd actually break bigger laws as well. And so that was how he cleaned up New York. First of all, he got rid of all the crooks inside of the um, uh, you know, police and uh, agencies, got rid of them. And then he went after a zero tolerance policy and he, he, did a, he really cleaned it up. He made New York wonderful again, of course, the Joe Biden regime and uh, when Trump lost um, it just uh, all fell apart now and uh, nobody it's a shithole really and so San Francisco that people just don't want to live there anymore so um, yes so um, that's what I would say with Garama if she is guilty I mean she's suspected and if she is this is our green MP I would say that there'll be other things as well that she has done that you know like could be her tax returns might be not honest on that There'll be other things there. If she'll do uh, a, something like steal, if it's true, $15,000 worth of uh, jewellery and clothing from stores uh, repeatedly, not just once, but they're probably, she's probably doing other, other things as well. So they'll be, they need to look into that a bit deeper, I think, because you, you'll find that there'll be more. And so um, that will probably come out. And uh, yes, yeah, so aren't the wheels falling off the, the leftists at the moment? Gosh, we had Kerry Allen, so the wheels fell off her. She's a was a drunken, um, probably under the influence of pharmaceutical drugs for her psychological disorder. Um, what on earth they're doing in Parliament in our House of Representatives when they're mentally unstable is beyond me. I do not understand why we would uh, we would tolerate that. You know, why was why the media and uh, all the leftists? making a sort of um, excuses for it. Now, I think even Luxon's a bit soft on this. You know, they're all kind of just think it's okay that to have people that are mentally deranged. I mean, we had Ardern. I mean, she was a nutcase. Of course, she had a mental breakdown at the end. I mean, a mental breakdown, they say, of course, she said she had burnout, didn't have enough fuel left in the tank, but basically um, just not up for the job. I mean, it is a very stressful job. And... Um, Silly, really, to um, go and put yourself into those positions, but they, she did, Ardern did, and um, you know, she, I could tell, I could tell, she hated the media. She hated dealing with people, uh, hated having to be asked, you know, answer questions. She just, it was just an a absolute nightmare for her. It's just a daily, you know, just a dread drudge, just a terrible job for her. She hated it. Whereas people, someone like Judith Collins, she loves, she loves politics. And she loves the media. They're like her. I I see her. She's like um. I have a vision of a of a mother hen with all these chicks coming around. That's the media, the chicks. And she she said she'd say to them, oh, "I'm sorry for keeping you up so late. You know, when you're coming out of Parliament to report on something." And um, she just really good. Um, I'm I'm very surprised that um the the government the country didn't didn't accept her, and I think. I just to see how she just loved dealing with me, loved dealing with people. She was a people person, really, really good, great person. And a friend of mine actually was uh, in business with her, uh, Domenico Mosca. He's over in Italy now. He's a very successful uh, restaurateur, and um, he said that uh, she was his business partner, and she's great. Uh, all the way way back then, I think it was. I don't know whether it was the Italian job that he had on Jewels Road. One of them, I think it might have been. So she was involved in that. I don't know whether she's a silent partner. I, do, I didn't go into the details. But 
She just loves people, loves the media, and she's the right person for the job. Whereas someone like Ardern, she doesn't like dealing with people. She doesn't like the media. And it was all I could tell. It was just like a real strain on her uh, because she's mentally unstable. She's highly mentally unstable. I mean, for a woman to be wearing a, a, a burqa and encouraging all the rest of the halfwits to wear a burqa when the 51 people were apparently 51 people were killed by an apparent lone gunman uh, at the um, at Christchurch in 2019, and then she was wearing a burqa. I mean, I mean, it's or uh, whatever you call it, those hajib, not a burqa, not a full burqa. Probably a good idea, actually, <laughs> put a burqa on her. Cover her up. That'd, we'd love that, wouldn't we? Yes, for those of us that uh, aren't that happy with her. But, um, oh, well, I mean, gosh, she hated it. She didn't enjoy that job at all. It was just uh, it was just on the career path. I think they wanted her more than she wanted them, That's the Labour Party. But, of course, then when it all turned to custard, uh, it's going to take them, I would say, a decade or more to recover from the carnage of Hipkins Ardern and Robertson and others, uh, they were so, they really thought they were just unbelievably um, arrogant towards the end that they thought, and then they realized, and then they saw the polls were all going against them. But before then, they were so arrogant. You know, they were just, yes, I am a socialist. They're saying it in the parliament, you know. And, you know, and that's a communist. I mean, it's every socialist wants to be a communist. I mean, they, they just call it. What they do is they say, uh, you're socialism. That's how they, they use it. Because social sounds good. And we're so ignorant in this country. And they've never been teaching us. They've never been teaching kids for the last, you know, quite a few decades about the um, worry of socialism and communism. And they always use the word socialism because it sounds a lot nicer and more acceptable until they get into power. But we had a full-fledged communist running our country for six years. That's what we had. It's 26 minutes to 6 o'clock, 26 to 6. And um, we'll better have a look at the news, I suppose. Let's do that then. So the shoplifting. Why do people shoplift? Well, they're going to come out with it. They're going to serve them, survey by... Retail New Zealand in 2023 found that 92% of retailers that had been surveyed had experienced crime in the year to August 2020, up until uh, from eight up from 81% in 2017 in this survey. An increase in retail theft is seeing people who have never needed shoplifting prevention training seeking it out. A crime prevention expert has said. Allsafe director Dean Chandler said retail theft had gone up in the past 18 months, while some groups targeted goods with high resale value. So who are those groups? Hmm. Yes. Uh, the survey by Retail New Zealand in 2023. I have read that. I told you that. Uh, it found shoplifting was most prevalent crime, with 82% of retailers affected. That was yeah, That was in 2017. Retail New Zealand Chief Executive Carolyn Young said retail crime came in a t- total cost of $2.6 billion a year and $1.3 billion of that was shrinkage or loss of goods. But shrinkage, I thought shrinkage was from staff. Oh, maybe I'm wrong on that. Shrinkage is just theft. <laughs> That's a good word, isn't it? Nice word. Why don't you just call it what it is? Theft. About 57% of retailers were uh, expecting crime to increase in the next year, Young said. 
But why do people shoplift? That's the interesting thing, isn't it? A lack of resources. Tasmanian School of Business and Economics marketing lecturer, Dr. Balkrishna Poddar, said that many people shoplifted due to a lack of resources uh, to buy items. No money. Among adolescents, he said, it had often been due to young people wanting something but not being able to buy it. For adults, it was more likely due to a material want and a lack of funds. So it can't be that for, if it's true, that our green former Green Minister of Justice, uh, Golritz Garriman, if, I mean, she's got plenty of money, and living in a Greyland house, it's probably not rented, it's probably your own. So I think, what's her reason for it? Is it just a, oh, I don't know, why would you do that? And you can't blame mental health on it. It's just nonsense. She's got something there, some grudge, some rebellion, that thinks she's got the moral high ground to thieve from others. Maybe she thinks the prices are too high. I don't know. But I'm sure we'll have some weirdo shrinks giving us all this nonsense. And she'll get off. Instead of going to a woman's penitentiary, which is where she should go if she is guilty, and then she should be deported back to her home country. Because she came here as a refugee. She wasn't born in this country. She came from Iran, so she should go back there and live with the rallies. Find a nice uh, Arab husband. If she's not married. I mean, if she married, no talk of a husband. Maybe she's a lesbian. So many, isn't there? So many lefties that are lesies. Lefties, lesies. Anyway, we'll send her to Lebanon, where the lesbians live. <laughs> oh, this guy at a bar. He says, see that? You see, don't go. There's no point in asking her out. She's a lesbian. He goes, oh, I don't care where you live from. <laughs> I don't care where she's from. Tasmanian. Uh, yes. Now, now. So why do they do it? You've also got organised crime. Young said that retailers saw that a lot of organised crime and people stealing to order, and they use a lot of young kids. Uh, Chandler said that the professional shoplifter either worked alone or in groups to target goods with high resale value. So is that our uh, suspected Golras Garama, our former justice minister? Is that what she does? Is she just working alone? Is she just a professional shoplifter? Maybe just the thrill of it. I sort of thought maybe it's the thrill of it. The excitement, the adrenaline, maybe that's what it is for these people. Could be. But they'll no doubt give it a give her a disease. They'll say, oh, it's kleptomania or something, you know, some mental disorder, and then she'll get off. And that's what happens. Um, but attention here. Podar said some would, would also shoplift for the attention. Ah. Oh. Yeah, really? Why? Why would you get attention? He said that they could often be teenagers who were try- oh, I see, trying to get attention from the others, are probably trying to impress. If you're gang affiliates, you're trying to impress the, the uh, gang leaders so you can be in the gang. But it could also be those who felt excluded used shoplifting to gain attention from other groups. He said there's, um, then there's the young people who are committed They've committed destructive acts and gaining notoriety and doing really outrageous things. And he said they want to be famous, you know, on social media, that sort of thing. But I don't think that's the case with this one. If indeed Golris Garama is guilty of stealing from the stores, Creative Works and 
The other one on Black Street in Ponsonby. What was that? Scotty's. Yeah. And um, addiction and mental health. Young said that their retailers also saw addicts stealing to fund. Yeah, well, I don't think there's, unless she's got a drug habit. Who knows? We don't know. Will it come out in the wash, though? A lot of covering up going on, isn't there? You know, if it's true about, you know, a certain person we know that likes fishing, if it's true, I mean, they, man, the cops covered up for that. If it is if it is a cover-up, I mean, you know, we live in a very corrupt country. And it's not until I read the book by Greg Hallett, and people say, oh, he's a nutcase, but, I mean, I don't think he is a nutcase, actually. I mean, he thinks he's King John or something like that, you know, the, should be the, the King of England. But, you know, he's it's pretty well thought through. He's not just some lunatic thinking he's a king. He's very, I mean, he, man, if he, if he's like a living in, um, if he's a fantasist, boy, oh boy, he's a pretty blooming good one. I've heard him on numerous occasions being interviewed by some pretty top, you know, conspiratorial type people. And um, Greg Hallett, his book, New Zealand, The um, Blackmailer's Guide, it's called. You can get hold of that. And they're trying to ban it in this country. Now, if you go to Counterspin Media and send them an email, I'm pretty sure Calvin's still got a pile of them left. He gave me one, Calvin Alp, uh, about three or four years ago. So I'm sure if you sent them a nice donation, he'd be happy to put one on and courier it to you. So it's the book by Greg Hallett, and it's called New Zealand a Hitchhiker. Uh, New Zealand a, um, uh, I was going to say a shoplifter's guide. <laughs> no, it's the um, blackmailer's guide. And... Uh, so he names, in that book, he names a former governor-general as a pedophile. Um, you wouldn't believe how many people, he says, are on being paid uh, by foreign entities to change laws in this country. Um, spies. Uh, he, in that book, he said that Helen Clark was a KGB agent and prostitute. That's what he said in the book. That's what he said. You can go and read it. He's never been, he, he's never gone to court for, for what he's written. So wonder why that is. That people just, the politicians and the, uh, Paul Holmes comes up in there as a druggie. And uh, there's quite, a, there's a whole heap of them in there. So if you get hold of that book, um, write to Calvin at Counterspin Media, Calvin or Hannah, and they'll be able to give it to you. New Zealand, a hitchhiker's guide, uh, New Zealand, uh, a blackmailer's guide by Greg Hallett. And you can look it up online. I mean, you could probably buy it, but why Why do that? Calvin's got copies there. I'm pretty sure he has. Unless the police took them all. Hey, maybe that's why they went and broke into them, into their house and took all their camera gear. They probably took all those books as well. Maybe they didn't want them out there. Maybe that was why they did it, because he had a pile of them, a good pile of them, that he'd either bought off Hallett or Hallett had given him, because he knows Greg Hallett. But Greg Hallett is now, um, he's had 12 assassination attempts on his life, he says. Now, he's either a really good storyteller and a fantasist, or it's true. And I'm beginning to think that maybe it's true. That uh, we live in the most corrupt little country, probably one of the most corrupt countries in the world. And it's, on the outside, it's just like a whited sepulchre, all beautiful and clean. And then on the inside, it's dead man's bones and worms. That's our country, run by criminals. And um, pretty scary thought, isn't it? And then we had a chance, didn't we, back in October, to vote for 
an honest person and an honest party with about 33 candidates, New Zealand loyal. They were loyal to us, not to them. We had our chance and we got amnesia, didn't we? We forgot that Winston Peters has been lying to us for decades, that he never comes through on any of his promises. And we just forgot all about it. And then we just got amnesia and voted for him again. <laughs> Why would we do such a stupid thing when we had the opportunity? And only about 30,000 of us, according to the data, but we don't know if that's true, do we? We don't know if there was a lot more votes. And maybe there is a lot more votes. How would we know? There's certainly some shenanigans going on with that voting system. And that needs to be sorted out. Richard Preble's alluded to it too. Those ballot papers that they've been posting out to people, those postal ballots, he says there's probably thousands of people that have filled out voting ballot papers and they're not eligible and they don't check it. They only check the numbers. They don't ask for a uh, identification. You can just go in and do it. And that's what's been happening. And that's why I think National, it was a landslide. They didn't do as well as they... As, as it looks, I think they probably would have even done better. The right's done better, but they tried hard, but they couldn't. They couldn't, um, they couldn't beat them. And that's what happened in 2016. They cheated then in the United States, but it was a landslide to Trump, and he won. Uh, but it, it looked close. 2020, they were ready for him, and they cheated. And I reckon they cheated here. I mean, you don't get 17 electorates in the South Island. They're all vote farmers voting for... They all vote for National, have done for decades. They don't vote Labour all of a sudden. At 50% exactly. And even the figures, it was like they were just so, like, so arrogant, they were rubbing our nose in it. 50.0%. <laughs> Some of them. It was just crazy. Why would we think they wouldn't cheat? I mean, you're seeing it in the States, you're seeing it all over the world. But you're seeing this great pushback, aren't you? This, we're all waking up. We're not woke, but we're waking up. And there's this massive pushback from conservative people, right-thinking people, that, uh, and they're just saying no, all over the world. And we've got people now, but the trouble, the trouble is, they're still involved with globalism, which is a wicked thing. And the globalists, they don't care whether you're uh, a, a Nazi <laughs> they don't care whether you're a communist or a fascist they don't care but they do teach collectivism and of course that's what Chris, Chris Luxon believes he is a collectivist uh, Christopher Luxon and if you don't know much about collectivism the place to, to, uh, to go would be G. Edward Griffith on, uh, G. Edward Griffin he's been warning us for, oh my gosh, how long has he been warning us for? I would say 50 years. Now have a listen to this before we've got, we've got time. I've got time. <laughs> yeah, i got time. Here's G. Edward Griffin now. He'll explain to you. And then I'll dig out Chris Luxon. And he lets it go that, yes, we have rights, but no, our rights don't trump the collective. So you, this, you need, we all need to find out what is collectivism. Every tyrant in the world was a collectivist. Hitler, the Nazis, fascists, communists, socialists, they're all collectivists. They all believe that the group is more important than the individual. And that 
permeates through is, uh, journalism in this country as well. It's the group think. You can't go outside of what the group is ex- what's expected of you. It's for the good of the group. And they'll lie, cheat and steal for the good of the group. It's not easy to define the word collectivism in a few sentences because there are so many aspects to it. But it is easy enough to recognize a few of the major aspects and you'll recognize it. One of the major aspects of collectivism is that it's based on the principle that the individual must be sacrificed if necessary for the greater good of the greater number. You'll find that under all forms of collectivism, whether it be Nazism, communism, fascism, socialism, or neoconism, or whatever you want to do, all of these forms of collectivism have that fundamental uh, philosophy or ideology beneath it. Now, that sounds pretty good to many people. It sounded good to me when I was in school and learning about the greater good of the greater number. After all, uh, we've been taught that we live in a democracy and therefore the majority should rule and all of these things which sound very good if you don't probe too deeply. And so many people think that that's a good concept, but it's a terrible concept when you, when you follow it to its roots. Because you see, there's no such thing as a group. A group doesn't really exist. It's, it's all in the mind. Uh, the, the word group is an abstraction. It, it symbolizes in our minds the concept of many individuals. But group does not exist by itself. You cannot touch a group. You can touch individuals only. It's similar to the concept of the word forest. You can look at a forest, you say, well, I'm looking at a forest, but you're not. You're looking at trees. They're only trees. And so the word forest is this abstraction for the concept of many trees. And the same thing is true in social structures. The word group is a very deceptive word. We think that the group somehow has rights. Well, since there is no such thing as a group, we're really dealing with the concept of of many individuals having somehow more rights than uh, than a smaller group of individuals. And so uh, that really, if you follow it all the way to its core, is a question of mathematics. Uh, Collectivism is, is based on the substance uh, that uh, three people um, really have the right to tell two people what to do regardless, because there's three against two. And once you boil it down to the issue of mathematics, it falls apart, because um, Human rights are not based on mathematics. Uh, I know we don't have time for a lot of this, but something that just occurred to me this morning when I was thinking about this concept. Uh, they say that the uh, the greater good of the greater number is is accomplished by giving the larger number the right to dictate to the smaller number. But when you think it through, it's just the opposite. Let's suppose that you had uh, uh, four different elements in society. You had a group called uh, red, a group called green, a group that's blue, and then a smaller group that are purple. The red, green, and blue represent different classes or groups of society, and the purple ones are the administrators, the government officials, the police, the courts, and all of the bureaucrats and the politicians that are going to regulate this great society. So you say, well, a group uh, the first two groups, red and green, uh, decide to take all the property away from blue. And that's certainly for the greatest good of the greater number because red and green is a greater number than blue. So 
if that's your point. And finally, the greater good of society has been served in that uh, equation. But now the next time around, uh, green and blue decide to take away the property of red. And you say, well, in that instance also, the greater good of the greater number has been served. And then finally, to round it out, you get, uh, uh, what did they do, red and green, green and blue. Well, blue and red then get together and take away the property of green. And here again, uh, the greater good of the greater number has been served. But when you stand back and look at the whole process, uh, all of the groups have been plundered by the others. And you might say, well, it all evens out, doesn't it? No, it doesn't, because there's a fourth group, the purple. And every time there's a plundering action going on, the purple wind up with a pretty good share of the action just for their administrative services. And so when you follow it all the way through at the end of this process, all of society has been damaged by this greater good for the greater number concept. You see, The only greater good for the greater number really comes from the concept of individualism when you deny the majority to, to take away the rights or the property of the minority. If you hold up the individual as the supreme element in society instead of the group, under that philosophy, under that ideology, now you do actually have the greatest good for the greatest number. Isn't that great? G. Edward Griffin. Look him up, have a listen. Uh, if you go to our website, which is thewireless.nz, and you'll find a link down the bottom there to Mickey Willis's The Great Awakening, G. Edward Griffin is, is in that. He's, he's interviewed by Mickey Willis, and you'll find the link to that so you can, you can study it. But so there we are. And so uh, Luxon let the cat out of the bag in this interview. Do you support... Cutting benefits to solar parents who don't vaccinate their children. Yes, I do. Why? Um, because it's about a notion of rights and responsibilities. If you want to be part of New Zealand and civil society, you have certain inalienable rights, but you also have responsibilities to actually for the collective and, and helping the collective of New Zealand. Did I? Did I? Did we? Did we hear? Did you hear? Did you hear what he said? Helping the collective of New Zealand. The what? And helping the collective of New Zealand. Ah, oh, what is the collective, Chris? Why just target solo parents and probably solo mums, really, if we're talking about it? Should that it's be extended? Should it, should it be extended to cutting working for families benefits? It, it, yeah, it should. Yeah, it should. Woo! Grant Edwards, playing today's best country. Liberty New Zealand Breakfast. The world at five. On 88.1 FM, The Wireless. So what we've actually got uh, with Luxon is the Prime Minister of our country. He's actually another tyrant, isn't he? He's another collectivist. Every, every tyrant in the world, every uh, tyrannical government through history has been collective. They've used collectivism, uh, groupthink, as their reason for giving, taking away our rights and freedoms. And he's, he's worse than Ardern. I think he's further down the track than she is. I think she was an overhead. But I don't think he is. I think he's fully immersed. I think he's a World Economic Forum boy. I can't prove that he that he went there, but I would say that he would be. He's a globalist. So is his little sidekick, Seymour. And Lion Winston is just riding along on the tail feathers on the globalist vulture, as Samantha Edwards calls it. Now, if you want to find out more about uh, Winston, have a look at Winston Rides Again at Counterspin Media in the, under videos. Winston Rides Again, 
and that is uh, written and dire- uh, written and directed and uh, put together totally um, presented by I should say Samantha Edwards. No relation to me, but she's pretty good. Uh, he won't find too many problems there. Hasn't been taken to court for anything she said. Backs it all up. So, uh, so that's what we've got. So we've um, we've lost our marbles and we've gone and voted. First, we voted for communists. They were in for six years and destroyed our country. That's what they do. That's the job of a communist. The socialist, the communist, the same thing, is to destroy us. And then the Marxists come along and just take away more of your freedoms. And that's what we've got now. We've got not Marxists. We've got uh, fascists now. We've got, we actually got fascist government now. Collectivist government. Fascist. And there'll be another one. There'll be X. X is coming up. We know that. What's disease X? Right-wing circle, Sam, a slam hypothetical pandemic, so they say. I don't think so. I don't think so. I think they're, they're ready. They're all very quiet about it. Top line, with less than a week until the World Economic Forum discusses potential preparations for a hypothetical disease far deadlier than COVID-19. Jovid, not better say Jovid. Disease X mentioned in the... Uh, is, uh, uh, mention of the illness have sparked a firestorm on social media with right-wing accounts slamming the plans surrounding this hypothetical situation. Here are the key facts. The World Economic Forum is slated to hold a meeting called Preparing for Disease X on Wednesday. Is that next week or is that happening right now? It might be happening right now. Where a panel of international speakers, including people from the World Health Organization, pharmaceutical company AstraZeneca and conglomerate Philips, uh, we'll discuss which Nobel efforts are needed to prepare healthcare systems for multiple challenges ahead. Disease X is a hypothetical unknown threat. It's the name used among scientists to encourage the development of countermeasures, including vaccines and tests, to deploy in the case of a future outbreak. The WHO convened a group of over 300 scientists in November 2022 to study the unknown pathogen that could cause a serious international epidemic, positioning a mortality rate 20 times that of COVID-19. News of the World Economic Forum meeting, however, spiralled into a heated debate on social media on Thursday, with right-wing users warning preparations for the unknown disease could parallel the types of shutdown measures put in place during the COVID-19 pandemic. A major criticism in right-wing circles, with some users drawing similarities to a baseless theory that COVID was planned. Well, I don't think that's baseless. This is Forbes magazine, and I'm just adding a few words there, as you know. A few words. Monica Crowley, former Fox News contributor and Assistant Secretary for Public Affairs, she doesn't go along with it. She says she was uh, Public Affairs to the Treasury Department during the Trump administration. She urged in a tweet, I don't know why they still call it a tweet, <laughs> Twitter, she called, it a, she called it an X, oh, I don't know, uh, that the new contagion would allow world leaders to implement lockdowns restrict free speech and destroy more freedoms, appearing to... Oh, we've got news. I have to come back to this. Oh, no, we're right. Yeah, we've got news coming up. So we'll talk about this Monica Crowley after the news at six. Uh, Gosh, I almost thought I missed it. I was just going to talk right through it like I did yesterday. 
So they want to restrict free speech. It will destroy uh, more freedoms, uh, appearing to uh, reiterate the basis theory that Microsoft uh, founder Bill Gates uh, schemed to control recipients of Jovid vaccine with the microchip. Uh, so, but this Monica Crowley, she's onto it. But the, but you know, because this Forbes magazine are just uh, mocking her. Okay, we'll move across to the international news desk now, and here we go. Coming up, eighty-eight point one FM, the wireless international news. TNT Radio News. For TNT, this is James O'Neill. Pakistan has confirmed conducting a series of airstrikes targeting terrorist hideouts in southern Iran, describing the operation as precise and stating it resulted in the neutralization of several militants. This offensive follows Iran's own recent airstrikes against a terrorist group located in Pakistan. Iranian officials, as reported by local media, have stated that the explosions in the Sistan-Balochistan province of Iran resulted in the deaths of seven non-Iranian civilians, including three women and four children. In response to these events, Tehran has sought an immediate explanation from Pakistan regarding the airstrikes. This demand was reported by Iranian broadcaster Press TV, which referenced information from an unnamed source. The Foreign Ministry of Islamabad confirmed on Thursday morning that the military action had been carried out, labeling the mission a success. The ministry also emphasized Pakistan's commitment to take all necessary steps to preserve the safety and security of its people. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky has clarified that he did not intend to meet with Chinese Premier Li Kang at the World Economic Forum in Davos, countering recent media reports that suggested China's top official had declined a meeting request from Zelensky. In his remarks, Zelensky downplayed the significance of a potential meeting with Premier Li, indicating that Li is not the primary decision-maker in China. Zelensky emphasized his preference for engaging directly with the most influential leaders, stating, there is a Chinese premier, we'll meet with him. I would love to meet with the leader of China. As far as I know, in China, Xi Jinping makes decisions, and in Ukraine, I make decisions. I don't need just any dialogues. I need important decisions from the leaders who make these decisions. This statement from Zelensky comes amidst speculation that he had sought a meeting with Li at the forum, only to be rebuffed by the Chinese side. So far, Beijing has not publicly addressed the possibility of any high-level meetings with Ukrainian officials or responded to Zelensky's comments. David Cameron, the former British Prime Minister, and Argentine President Javier Millet have acknowledged their differing views on the sovereignty of the Falkland Islands, as reported by the Foreign, Commonwealth and Development Office on Wednesday. During a meeting at the World Economic Forum in Davos on Wednesday, the Foreign Secretary and President Malay engaged in what the FCDO described as a warm and cordial discussion. President Malay, who was recently elected, had proposed a Hong Kong-style agreement whereby the United Kingdom would transfer sovereignty of the South Atlantic Islands to Buenos Aires. The conversation also included discussions about finding a resolution to the long-standing dispute over the islands, with Lord Cameron and his Argentine colleague, Diana Mondino, playing significant roles in these discussions. However, the FCDO stated that the leaders ultimately politely agreed to maintain their differing positions on the issue. The spokesperson for the FCDO reiterated that the UK's firm stance and continuous support for the Falkland Islanders' right to self-determination. This stance is in line with the results of the 2013 referendum, where nearly all of the 3,500 residents voted to remain under British governance. 
Fox News contributor and Washington Times opinion editor Charlie Hurd on Wednesday told Fox News host Sean Hannity why Democrats are terrified of facing Donald Trump. And we're going to see it again in New Hampshire, where Democrats play in the Republican primary or the Republican caucus in an effort to get the weakest candidate uh, in all, uh, to get the nomination. And in this case, that's Nikki Haley. And I think it's really interesting that, re- that Democrats seem to have a better grasp of the real truth here, which is Donald Trump is the most formidable candidate who could face Donald Trump, uh, Joe Biden in November. He can prosecute the case against Joe Biden better than anybody. And Democrats are terrified of facing Donald Trump. We'll be back with another news break at the top of the next hour. This has been James O'Neill for TNT. For the news. They do a great job of breaking down the big story. Today's News Talk Radio, TNT. All right, let's look at the extremes. Banks Peninsula, 23.5 degrees. Timaru, 12.9 is the lowest. Castle Point, 46 kilometres of wind. And Mount Cook, 3.2 millimetres of rain. Temperatures are pretty much the same right across the country. Kaitaia's up there with Wangarei, 22 and 20 for Kaitaia. Uh, Auckland on 20 degrees. Hamilton has 15. Uh, Rotorua's on 18. Tauranga, 21. They're pretty much the same as it was earlier in the day. Uh, 15 and all the way down in the Stewart Island and the Chathams they've got 15 degrees even Queenstown's on 17 degrees so it's warm in the south the only cool place really is Hamilton the cool and well got Timaru there that's pretty cool don't know why it's so cool there it says they're 12.9 so that's 13 I suppose it is quite cool isn't it uh, six minutes past six it is pretty close to it for the short forecast now it's going, this is valid until midnight tonight as far as I know uh, for northern Taranaki, to Taranaki, including the Coromandel and the Bay of Plenty. Cloudy periods with isolated showers. Wanganui to Horapanua, uh, also for the central high country, mainly fine weather. Isolated showers developing this evening, especially north of Wanganui. For Gisborne and Wairarapa, generally fine. Morning to you. Tapiti and Wellington, howdy howdy. Partly cloudy with isolated showers from this evening. Down in the South Island there, or up in the South Island, wherever you are in the country. I suppose we can't really talk like that when we go out. Well, gosh, we go out all over the world. Got people from crazy places. You wouldn't believe where they come from. I mean, I wouldn't even, places where they, I don't even, I'm surprised there's any English-speaking people there at all. Maybe they just like the sound of the voice or the sound of English. English does sound rather lovely, doesn't it? <laughs> anyway. Way down south there, Marlborough and Nelson, mostly cloudy with scattered showers in Nelson. Buller and Weston, rain with some heavy falls. So that we've got some warnings going on there now. A few thunderstorms possible in the southern Westland area. And this evening and tonight as well. At Canterbury and Otago, Southland, you've got rain about Canterbury, high country. Could be heavy. Elsewhere, just a few spots of rain becoming scattered during the day. But mainly dry for Canterbury Plains and also for Christchurch. For Fjordland, rain with some heavy falls, easing to showers later this afternoon. And for the Chatham Islands, partly cloudy. I'll be back in just a moment. Radio works because of its ability to personalize to the listener. What's exciting these days is that people are rediscovering it. You know, people are really rediscovering just how powerful radio is, how ubiquitous it is. It's in our cars, it's in our homes. There are so many new ways to access it. It's everywhere. To find out more, go to tntradio.live. Well, psychiatric care is increasingly defaulted to prisons 
Former public health leader says the conditions faced by mentally ill prisoners are comparable to the notorious Lake Alice Psychiatric Hospital, according to a former public health leader. Uh, that is a new story that's just come out by Radio New Zealand, rnz.co.nz. You can find them and you can go over there and have a read of it. Uh, we'll just whip through the headlines. Eight charged at a crackdown on the pokey machine corruption. And this is in Hawke's Bay. A network of corruption has been operating in the Hawke's Bay gaming machine sector. According to prosecutors, uh, that's what they are claiming. And there'll be some court cases coming up out of that. Uh, in Napier, a woman says her barking dogs, who uh, they are not a nuisance despite fresh council orders. The Napier woman, whose barking dogs have been driving her neighbours mad, <laughs> maintains uh, they are not a nuisance despite fresh council orders to get them under control. And they can find you, all right? Yeah, you can have a barking dog. You can have a hunterway dog. They're the barkers. Out on the farm, you can bark, bark, bark because it's part of their job, but you can't. And you can be fined, I think, about three hundred dollars every time they call the guy out. If your dogs, if he, if he hears them barking there, and apparently they're just allowed to waltz onto your property, so it doesn't seem like we own our own properties when people like that can just waltz on. They're not police; they don't have the right to search property. I mean, we've got the we've got the Bill of Rights, and yet these dog control officers they just wander on. <laughs> And all, you know, all looking like, you know, security guards, don't they? All strapped, not strapped up with, with guns or anything, but uh, they're looking uh, fairly menacing, uh, some of them. Uh, world premiere of The Mountain to be held in Taranaki, the heartfelt drama, the film that shows three children on a mission to find healing under the watchful eye of Taranaki, Manga, while, well, I guess that's, Mount Egmont is what they mean to say, while discovering friendship in the spirit of adventure. So that is called The Mountain. And a metal detectorist, oh, I, did, that's, I didn't know that's what they called them, a metal detectorist recovers a lost engagement ring from the sea at Mount Monganui. That's good, isn't it? Bit of leisure there. An, a, an engagement ring that was lost in the sea is the latest find for a metal detectorist who, what do you what do you do for a job? I am a metal detectorist. Oh, a detective, detectorist. Yes, I am a detective <laughs> with a detector. Um, they've discovered it includes uh, twelve gold rings and a half a kilo of silver. That's what they've found. So it can be quite lucrative. But uh, I don't know. Just wouldn't want to wander around with it. You'd probably get a sore shoulder, wouldn't you, with that thing out front? You know, just holding onto that thing. Kind of heavy, wouldn't it? Now, Becky, they found me. Now that was the man's last message. Uh, this was a man that his skeletal remains washed up on the beach in Canterbury. Um, that was in North Canterbury. And it came up in, in two different places, actually, all the bits of his body. And it was believed, he was believed to be on a drug-fueled bender in the 24 hours. But I was reading another report on that. I think, yeah, so, I mean, the conspiracy mind comes out, doesn't it? But um, there was also, I don't know if they... If, this one doesn't seem to mention that in the heading, but these people that found these remains, there was uh, something like, um, because he'd just done a robbery, a robbery of um, uh, the, the Richmond, I think it was the warehouse store in Richmond, he did that with someone who actually worked there, and they took $50,000. And there was all this money found blowing around on the beach as well, that these walkers had found. And so what's the story with that? Um, so that was on Boxing Day 2021 when the beachgoers, they came across $10,000 in cash on Amberley Beach. The cash was also found blowing around several kilometres further south 
at the neighbouring Leechfield Beach. So unless he just went there and opened a suitcase and then topped himself and then just walked into the water and drowned, I don't know. But he says, this was this is what he said. He said, Becky, that was his, uh, the, the mother of his child, she was deported. I think she was German. Was she? I think she was. And she was deported because she, you know, we obviously didn't have, didn't have the right to stay here, and so she went and took the child. But he uh, messaged her and said they found me. So whether he's involved with gangs, or I don't know, he's who knows. But the coroner they've ruled that the exact cause is unknown for Gerard Roberts Robertson, whose remains washed up on the beach. So that, uh, that came out late last night. And um, now, moving along, we've got uh, police say that a wheelchair found on State Highway 1 in Northland, safe and well. The, what, the wheelchair safe and well? Police say the woman who was found... Oh, police say a woman. <laughs> I missed that bit out. In a wheelchair, she's uh, safe and well. State Highway 1 near Kaikaui. It's been reunited with her family and is safe and well. Invercargill bar manager in $48,000 cigarette theft, highly trusted. Ooh, doesn't look too good. Bar manager, the woman who had worked at the bar for 20 years, was also trusted. Um, she was so trusted that she was not audited, the court had heard. Wakefield Brightwater residents asked to cut water use to bare minimum. This is the local council. They're appealing. Uh, the appeal has been made as overloaded pumps compromise the water supply in the small town near Nelson. Man accused of assaulting girl in Cambridge. Uh, police in the Waipu, uh, yes, the Waipa rather district, have arrested a 33-year-old man and charged with him with indecently assaulting and intimidating a girl under the age of 12. Northland drowning victim was outside flagged area, according to Surf Lifesaving. The death happened at Ruakaka Beach, I think it was yesterday, south of Whangarei. And uh, that's not so good. And the Beths announced for Coachella lineup. What is Coachella? The lead singer of a renowned New Zealand indie band. Oh, I'll have to look at that then. Quite like indie bands. Uh, they say that they're excited about checking off another item from their bucket list. So we, we could probably go back and have a look at that later once we've ploughed through this. Uh, the priest's sanctified robes and a hat were stolen from the Wellington Church. That's been reunited with the, um, with the, with the priests. And a Kiwi woman, this is for, um, that church is the um, Greek Orthodox too, by, by the way. They call themselves priests. The woman... Now, the Kiwi woman who went missing in Miami two decades ago, the, the cold case involving Alicia Hanan, who disappeared under mysterious circumstances in the US more than two decades, 20 years ago, has been reignited by Florida police. A man charged with murder of Harley Shimpton, he's been charged with murder of the 28-year-old who went missing in the Bay of Plenty back in November last year. And red rain warnings for up to 800 millimetres are expected to slam Westland. Already wet parts of the South Island are in for an incredibly large amount of rain. That's what rnz.co.nz are telling us. More news. The Cook Strait Ferries, Kiwi Rail, charged over Cook Strait Ferry breakdown. Nearly 900 people were on the inter-islander Kaitaki when it lost power. Now, dogs at risk of fatal virus. Oh, that frightening you. Frightening you. Make sure you get your parvo jabs. I wouldn't do that. 
I wouldn't put a pardo. I wouldn't put any vaccines anywhere near my dogs, and the it's only the strong ones with the that with that have got a a good um, a vital force that are able to tolerate these toxins that they're putting into them. It's just a money making racket. Uh, they get sick anyway. It makes them sick, it makes them worse, and sometimes it kills them. But here we are. Auckland is facing. This is what the the factory media say. Auckland is facing a canine. Parvorius, uh, parvovirus, I <laughs> parvovirus outbreak as the city continues to grapple with the post-Jovid surge in puppy numbers, uh, which pets say is contributing to the spread of the virus, which is absolutely nonsense. There's no evidence of any virus whatsoever. If you want to know about viruses, you'll find it's just the dogs are run down, probably will be all jabbed up, and they're probably eating crap food instead of eating meat instead of throwing them a possum unskinned which is what they are they're wolves dogs they come the wolf kind they're not cat kind are they they're wolf kind you just chuck them a possum and let them eat it fur and all fur feces guts the lot they've got all the nutrition they need just give them a dead possum off the side of the road if you just knock one over take it home for the dog knock over a rabbit give it to the give it to the dog although give it to me i, I like rabbit I eat the rabbits. I'm actually cultivating them. I've got wild. I've got um, what would you call it? Not they're not ocean-going rabbits, but <laughs> they're sort of free-range rabbits. I've got here at the moment. They're completely free-range. They've got their own housing, built it themselves, burrowed it themselves. But uh, I don't really see them as a big problem. I mean, I think if they really got out of control, you might need to do something about it. They did get out of control in Southland. There, they really got out of control, but they managed to bring that under control with um, shooting but now they want to poison everything don't they they don't don't want you shooting they just give the kids a whole bunch of 22 bullets give these boys out you go and give them a bounty you know five bucks or you know whatever a dollar 50 cents doesn't matter uh and give them a bounty there won't be any rabbits it'd be fine but i i like to keep a few i'm fattening some up at the moment they're um but i've i try i, sh- I did shoot a little one but too small too small for the pot i like them bigger and they taste like chicken Absolutely delicious. Not so fond of hair. You'd have to let them hang for about a week, wouldn't you, in the sun? <laughs> let them hang with the gut still in them or something to make them uh, tender. But um, but rabbits, delicious. Anyway, so this is the, the virus nonsense. If you want to know more about viruses and all that stuff, uh, at 80 minutes past six, too, by the way, for the clock watchers, which you need to do. I'm not, I'm not slamming you. I mean, we've got to keep an eye on the clock. I mean, I do in this work now. But, um, you know, some of us, that's why radio is so good, isn't it? Because you'd be in the car and you'd be driving along and think, and quite often people don't wear a wristwatch these days. They just have a mobile phone with them. And if you're just listening away and you've got some guy letting you know what the time is, and I've been, not, I'm not very good at that. I have to get a bit better at it because the sort of radio that I did, th- you know, 30 years ago or more, uh, well, quite a bit more, um, it was more music radio, and, you know, we didn't talk much. We just time and temperature people, and we'd, uh, be, be it not very often we would talk, just introduce, you know, that was, this is, and before that, and head of that was, and that was it, and coming up is, and that was it, really. Uh, we didn't really have, weren't allowed to put much uh, sort of personality behind anything. That was the way they were heading, just this sterile, horrible radio. I'm glad they fired me. <laughs> anyway, lifeguards verbally abused. Grabbed forcibly by a beachgoer, a member of the public had to step in during an incident at the Mount Monganui Beach. I wonder if there's alcohol and drugs involved. Who knows? I mean, why do people act like this? Uh, concerns for a missing Wanganui teen 
Uh, Mercedes Capri Haddon, she's 17 and she's not been seen since Monday after going missing while visiting relatives, a family member has said. Mercedes. This is about Marigold. I mean, I just think they're the nutty names, aren't they? Mercedes Capri. That's, you know, quite a nice car, <laughs> the Capri. She's named after cars. Haddon. So mum and dad obviously quite influ- influenced by the motor vehicle. Loved artwork of 20 years was found after going missing in a flood. I don't know how we float down the stream. A painting thought to have been lost forever has been returned a year after being ripped from its Hawke's Bay home. Ah, oh, yes. Well, that would be uh, during Cyclone Gabrielle, I suppose. A person drowns at Northland Beach. Yes, that was terrible news. That was at Ruakaka. That's about half an hour south of Huangarei, uh, off State Highway 1 there. Beautiful. Lovely. When you come over, you drive over the top of the Bryn Derwins, and as you hit the top there, you look out over the wonderful, um, what do you call it, Bream Head to Cape Colville. No, uh, Bream Head to Bream Tail. Just absolutely Bream Bay. Beautiful. Beautiful. I just love that view. When I used to go and look there and drive down the Bryn Derwin Hill, just give a quick look there, right at the top. Just a you know, really one of the best sites in the country. Um, dirty, messy, unhygienic. Survey finds elderly living in squalor. And the photograph that rnz.co.nz have chosen to use is one of a man. And so what, what are they saying? Dirty old men. And as I said yesterday, I've had some pretty dirty old women come into my store. Filthy things with, you know, peed down their, um, down their stockings and into the shoes and absolutely stunk. Well, I, had to put, when I had a shoe store back when I was about 19. Bought my first business with help from mum and dad. And, um, yeah, some pretty stinky women out there, I tell you. <laughs> I, and, and recently I've come across quite a few of them, actually. They just, they don't wash, they, I think it's they don't change their clothes, these women. I think men smell better when they don't wash than women. Women, absolutely pong. But I think it's the clothes. You've got to wash your, I mean, man, nothing goes for more than a day. I, as soon as I come in from work, I mean, I don't, you know, I don't shower every day. But boy, oh boy, I don't wear my clothes more than once. So they go straight in the washing machine. And I think that's what it is. They put dirty clothes away in the wardrobe and the whole house starts to reek. That's a good word, isn't it? Reek. Um, But anyway, a retired public health medical or medicine specialist says that there could be hundreds of elderly people living in severe squalor across the country. There's an audio over there at RNZ. If you just scroll down on the front page, it's under national news. Teen has been charged with manslaughter after the fatal Christchurch crash. The 15-year-old has been charged with manslaughter after this... Uh, oh, he's repeated again. This was in um, Selwyn District last year. This happened. Recycling rule change coming to Auckland. The city's curbside recycling is set to change as national standards come into play. Going to have some national standards, are they? Oh, that's interesting. Eight shoplifting arrests in South Auckland this year already, according to police. Uh, Police said that one group alone is believed to have stolen $9,000 worth of items. A shortage of ADHD medication. Oh, good. Pharmac is now asking health professionals to switch patients to another medication. So what are they going to give them? ADHD. I mean, it's caused by the childhood vaccinines. I better be careful because we're not sure what what I'm going out on. I just click a button and this thing does it all for me. Um, 24 minutes past six. So... 
Mm, yeah, no, it's the worst thing. It's not. A, it's not. Um, it's caused through the childhood vaccines. This ADHD. Uh, if you go to Steve Kirsch, K I R S C H, he's done a survey on it. Uh, he had. Uh, he's got about two hundred and thirty, two hundred and forty thousand subscribers. Steve Kirsch. He's the one that's helping Barry Young, who's the whistleblower. For he was the Minister of Health, not just a worker. That's what the media have tried to say. He was like a senior analyst. Uh, and he's got a degree. I mean, this guy's a smart guy, and he's been making noises about this for quite some time. And as far as I know, he even contacted RCR, and they did nothing. They sat on their hands, and it was really only Liz Gunn that got off a chuff with others. Liz Gunn and Samantha Edwards and, and the Counterspin team, they got stuck in. And also, um, he's been, I mean, Barry Young's been on TNT Radio. He's been on um, Alex Jones. And the man that's behind him is a billionaire uh, by the name of Steve Kirsch. You can find him at Kirsch, K-I-R-S-C-H, kirsch.substack.com, and you can read all about it. I'm on his mailing list. Anyway, he did a survey with 10,000 people that took part in the survey years, a few years ago. Excuse me. About um, yeah, 10,000 people. And out of that 1,000 people, they had never had a childhood vaccine, 1,000 of them, never had a childhood vaccine, and the mother had never been vaccinated with childhood vaccines. And guess what happened? Those surveyed had almost zero um, allergies. The one Out of the 1,000, they had never had a vaccine, a childhood vaccine, or a um, mother had been vaccinated, never had an allergy, had no chronic diseases whatsoever, none of them, no ADHD, no mental, no no mental disorders, nothing like no neurological disorders, nothing, nothing at all, and so that leads us to believe that the childhood vaccines are actually causing all the problems with the new allergies that we've got, kids with peanut disorders, that type of thing, and um, you know, is cot is cot death caused by by that by the vaccines, the childhood ones? Uh, all the diseases is cancer, the rear up of cancer, and now we've got the Jovid jabs out there. We've got this turbo cancer now, which just arrived out of the blue. We've got people dropping dead like flies. We've got politicians that are throwing in the towel and running for their lives, retiring. But they all need to be imprisoned. They need to be bef- stand before we can't imprison them without you know can't be prejudiced about this. They have to be judged, prejudicial. They have to be. Uh, judged and prejudicial, pre, uh, judicially dealt with, don't they? And I think the death penalty needs to come back in too, or for some of these crimes which are so severe, with top people, people that are in positions of authority over New Zealanders and and other countries, that have forced this biological weapon, really, this biological gene therapy upon us. And I don't think it was ever designed to um, help us at all. I think it was designed to make us unwell, to make us um, functioning invalids that don't live very long. Some die earlier than others. It's a bit like swimming to Australia. Some get further than others, but nobody makes it. And they don't want to pay us a superannuation because they're commies or they're fascists, they're collectivists. 
it's for the good of the group that you only live to a certain age and, the, and then we don't have to end up paying you all this money. They don't like old people. That's why they've changed all the rules, the, the uh, globalist infiltration into our uh, politics. They've changed the rules that it's very easy. You can just go, go and decide, talk to your doctor, and you can have yourself uh, anaesthetized, or whatever you call it. What's the word? Um, euthanasia, euthanized. That can, you can have that done within three or four days. And they don't qu- have to double-check to see if you're sure what you want to do. Sure there might be some mental health problems. could just need some counselling. But they don't care. Maggie Barry was a great warrior against this during when her time as a, prime, a minister of um, a member of parliament. But no one listened. And now it's moved away from doctors making decisions to a legal matter. And David Seymour is right at the helm of it. And Winston Pieces allowed it. And I've got a piece on that. I'll be back in a moment. I'll see if I can find it. And uh, th- this is from uh, Winston Rides Again. And it's uh, directed, uh, written and directed and um, presented by Samantha Edwards. And you can find that at Counterspin Media under videos. While you're there, give Counterspin a donation. They need it and they are doing great work for us. But the shortage of ADHD medication, apparently Pharmax now seeking health professionals, uh, asking health professionals to switch uh, patients to another medication. So we better find out, I suppose, what that other medication is. But in the meantime, I'll look for that um, soundtrack and uh, come back to you on that one. I'll see if I can find it for you. So just bear with me for a moment because I've lost the turntable. Where are you, turntable? Here we are. Here we go. Give me a minute with TNT Radio's Steve Malsberg. Business as usual at the United Nations on Tuesday as the U.N. Secretary General Antonio Guterres proved once again that the institution is a one-sided joke when it comes to Israel. After quote-unquote condemning the Hamas attacks of October 7th, which killed over 1,400 Israelis in the most brutal of ways, he was quick to add this disclaimer. It is important to also recognize the attacks by Hamas did not happen in a vacuum. Palestinian people have been subjected to 56 years of suffocating occupation. They have seen their land steadily devoured by settlements and plagued by violence. Their economy stifled, their people displaced, and their homes demolished. Their hopes for a political solution to their plight have been vanishing. Almost immediately, the Israeli ambassador to the UN tweeted, the UN Secretary General who shows understanding for the campaign of mass murder of children, women, and the elderly is not fit to lead the UN. I call on him to resign immediately. Fat chance. Thanks for giving me a minute. I'm Steve Malsberg. Be sure to listen to my show Monday through Friday, 10 p.m. Eastern Time, right here on TNT Radio. Yep, okay, it's 29 minutes to 7, and uh, we'll be back to TNT Radio at uh, 7 o'clock. But before then, I want to play a piece from Samantha Edwards's Winston Rides Again, and it's about the end-of-life bill. And it's pretty important, because he's involved in this, and so is David Seymour. And, uh, you know, it's very easy for all people to have pressure put on them to end their own life, because they, they feel they're a burden. And sometimes these wicked children will do that to to their elderly parents. And there is no safeguards 
and there needs to be. Have a listen to this. This is where Winston Peters came in, in a move that appears to have been planned well ahead of time. At the event of the first reading of the End of Life Choice Bill, David Seymour announced that he had agreed to a request made by Winston Peters way back in 2015, when he first entered his End of Life Bill into the ballot box, for a binding public referendum on the End of Life Choice Bill, saying that New Zealand First had asked for the public referendum in exchange for its nine votes. At the 2017 Labour and New Zealand First coalition negotiations, the one thing that Winston stipulated must be upheld in order for this coalition to take place was that a provision be made for a binding public referendum to be held on the End of Life Choice Bill. In 2019, after New Zealand First had voted in favour of, for all three readings, New Zealand First member Jenny Marcroft then successfully secured an amendment into the End of Life Bill that the government hold a binding public referendum. There were courageous voices in Parliament that stood against this bill, echoing the medical community's insistence that this bill not be handed to the New Zealand public. Here's Maggie Barry. I believe that um, this bill's fundamental purpose is designed to allow swift and easy access to euthanasia with scant regard for safeguards. We worked with elder abuse, end-of-life care professionals, disability and dementia experts, as well as doctors and lawyers. We put up 111 amendments designed to address safety concerns to ensure, for example, that medical professionals be required to check specifically for signs of elder abuse and to take active steps to ensure a patient is not under duress or being coerced. We tried hard to strengthen those safeguards against coercion and to ensure that agencies such as hospices and rest homes would have the right to conscientiously object, and that was not passed. The Disability Rights Commissioner, Paula Tesorero, is very firmly of the view that this bill, in its current state, devalues the lives of people living with disabilities and poses significant risks for them. The so-called right to die for some would all too easily become a duty to die for others, and a law change would normalise this. Uh, this is a flawed bill. It does not, uh, in its present form, should not be handed over to the people of New Zealand to do what the politicians could not do, which is to get a, a grip on this bill to understand it. We need to put resources into looking after people at the end of their lives for caring for them, not for killing them, not for funding euthanasia through the Ministry of Health, for goodness sake. I can't live with the permissive bill and I do not support it before this House. Let's not euphemise this with niceties and phrases. This is a kill bill. Because the Liberals that want this to pass do not have the numbers without a referendum. And those that want to advance abortion reform are refusing a referendum because they have the numbers anyway. In addition to party vote and electorate vote, the public will now vote on whether to legalise assisted dying. I feel like this is the start of the referendum campaign. As the binding public referendum drew closer, David Seymour then launched a public campaign encouraging people to vote yes on the referendum. That campaign played on the fear of pain of death, kept the public ignorant to the dangerous details contained inside the bill and it received committed support from members of not only ACT and New Zealand First, but also Liberal members of National, such as Judith Collins. The Honourable Judith Collins. Speaker, 25 years ago, I held my father's hand as he died, and he died with massive amounts of morphine in his system. He is someone who was uh, diagnosed with terminal bone cancer and given a few weeks to live. He lived six weeks. 
I've talked to many people about this issue and it's troubled me for a long time. And this year I have been very troubled by it because I felt that having been opposed to it, that I was on the wrong side. And I am on the wrong side of it in opposing it. I'm the right side now to say that everybody deserves some dignity in their lives. And to take... Now, a referendum is good, right? Democracy and a public voice is important. Yes, but this was a profoundly technical medico-legal issue. Now we found ourselves with dairy owners, electricians, plumbers and mechanics making a profoundly complex medical decision. And the referendum question was presented as simply as, do you support the End of Life Choice Act coming into force? That was it. That was the depth and extent of it. At the final vote, Winston Peters' party voted fully in support of the bill, as they'd promised to do. But now, their support could be deemed as simply a matter of fulfilling their obligations, as a condition of the allowance of the referendum. A referendum that was agreed to four years earlier and guaranteed to be binding at the New Zealand First Labour Coalition negotiations two years earlier. As we saw earlier, Winston has been very much in support of getting a euthanasia bill through Parliament since at least the early 90s. By helping to scaffold this bill around the Justice Committee with the aim of changing the Crimes Act, ruling out the medical community, as well as the addition of the binding public referendum, it all worked together to see this goal achieved, but without any blood getting on his hands. Like a consummate Pontius Pilate with absolute forethought, it appears that Winston knew that the best way to avoid any responsibility, as well as greatly increasing the chances of the bill's success, was to simply put it to the people. This appears to be a bit of a repeating pattern in Winston's MO, and perhaps may not be so much about democracy as about achieving a purpose, which is pretty much what we just heard National's Nick Smith say a minute ago, and was something that many MPs accused Winston of with this referendum condition, that it was playing dirty politics to manipulate the success of this bill. As the referendum drew closer, medical alliances such as Doctors Say No started to pop up to sound the alarm. They issued an open letter to New Zealand, trying to educate people, and even King's Counsel Grant Illingworth began to speak up about how the once sacrosanct Hippocratic Oath was being rendered impotent in New Zealand. I don't think we've had a referendum like this in New Zealand before. Is it uh, safe, secure, watertight? My answer to that is no, I've got serious concerns about the process. And groups like VoteSafe tried to spread the word about the dangers of this bill, imploring people to place their referendum vote on the side of the protection of the vulnerable. Another wonderful group called Lawyers for Vulnerable New Zealanders did their best to educate the public as quickly as possible and put out a number of articles in an effort to reach as many as they could to help people navigate and decipher the complexities in this bill. But there were just too many complexities to unravel in such a short time. One such complexity could be the fact that our health system is not operated on a needs basis. For example, if you found yourself at the back of the queue due to the fact that you're not Māori or Pacifica, and therefore facing an extensive wait for medical attention or even pain relief, could taking the end-of-life choice option then be guaranteed to be 100% a choice? in such a scenario? Or could it then actually be a default option because of our racist health policies? Or what if poverty limited a patient's health care access and they felt they couldn't financially afford pain management? Could a free procedure, instantly ending all pain, no waiting involved, not then become unevenly and dangerously attractive? Hey, why not give TNT Radio a follow? We sure would love you to do that. We're on all the social, major social platforms, including, of course, Facebook. 
Twitter, now X, Instagram, Gab and Getter, among others. Help us get the word out as we cover the biggest topics of our time on today's News Talk TNT Radio. Our government right now is full of mentally ill people. Uh, we managed to get rid of Jacinda Ardern. She couldn't handle the pressure. That was good. She had a nervous breakdown too, by the way. That's what happened to her. Burnout. <laughs> they call it burnout. It's a nervous breakdown. Uh, she's suffered from mental illness uh, most of her adult life, along along with um, the one that smashed a car. Who's this fellow? Is this Mike Hosking? <laughs> Who's this twit? Into the her electric car that we pay for, uh, smashed it into a parked car a month or so ago. Kerry Allen, she said she suffered from mental health most of her adult life. You've got to ask the question, why have we got mental patients in our parliament? What are they doing in there? Why don't they have to sit some sort of examination like to find out whether they're mentally stable enough to be a politician? If we're going to be paying them all this money, you can't get a gun licence if you're mentally unwell. So why is it that we've got uh, these people that they're on psychiatric drugs too, you can guarantee it, and then they drink as well, and you add the drink to the mix with the psychiatric drugs, which they they're keeping very quiet about the, all these people that are on psychiatric drugs that are doing violent crime very quiet about that they don't want it to be linked back to the pharmaceutical industry they say oh he's off his meds or she's off his, her meds no 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 they're on their meds and that's why they're crazy because if you continually take pharmaceutical prescription drugs that your your stupid quack dickhead of a uh, psychiatrist who's half of them are nutty themselves, they're giving you this stuff, this poison, to keep you as a patient. You never get any better, and they say you never get any worse, but you do. If you continue to take psychiatric drugs, you're going to go off the deep end and do something stupid. And that's, what's, that's what we've got, an epidemic of psychiatric drugs being dished out by these murderers and maimers in, the me- in our medicine, called medicine. It's not medicine at all. It's drugs. It is wickedness. It is sorcery. The pharmaceutical industry is made up of sorcerers. That's what it is, 28 to 7. Wow, that was me back in October. Uh, didn't even sound like me. sounded like someone else. And now I've got an interesting report from Sky News coming up. I'm just um, loading it into my program so I can actually play it to you. It's um, Javier Millet. He's the, um, the new leader of Argentina. And it's, uh, he's saying something not, not enough being done to protect uh, socialism. So that's very interesting. So I'll just uh, dig that out now. Where are you, Mr. Malay? Ha, huh. can I find him? That's the thing, isn't it? Javier, here he is. Have a listen to this, see what he's, see what he's on about. He slams the West for abandoning freedom for Davos. Freedom in Davos. Oh, OK, that's good. This could be good. Let's have a listen to this. The president of Argentina, who gave the World Economic Forum a lot more than they were bargaining for when he addressed their conference at Davos. Uh, the uh, South America's answer to Donald Trump, he gave it to Klaus Schwab and his henchmen with both barrels. He told them that the West was abandoning freedom for socialism, which he warned only ever produces poverty and piles of corpses. Then he slammed radical feminism for its gender quotas. He slammed the environmental movement for demonising human beings. He slammed universities and media for promoting social justice, which he told them typically ends with injustice. And then he concluded by telling them he had come to invite the Western world to return to freedom, economic prosperity and limited government. Have a listen to how he concluded. 
Do not be intimidated, intimidated either by the political class or by parasites who live off the state. Do not surrender to a political class that only wants to stay in power and retain its privileges. Do not surrender to the advance of the state. The state is not the solution. The state is the problem itself. You are the true protagonists of this story. And rest assured that as from today, Argentina is your staunch, unconditional ally. Thank you very much and long live freedom. Damn it. <laughs> Long live freedom. Damn it. Liz, could this guy get any better? And Klaus Schwab, he must have been squirming in his seat. Absolutely. Malay literally climbed into the belly of the beast just to implode. There was a lot of people disappointed that Malay was going to the West at all. It was like, why is this guy visiting Davos? This is exactly why he did it. He did a Ricky Gervais at the Golden Globes, but WEF version. This guy lectured them on the wonders of capitalism and how can you oppose it when it's dug so many millions out of poverty. He lectured them on the core values of libertarianism. Every single one of those core values of course, is something that the WEF vehemently opposes. This guy couldn't get any cooler and they keep trying to (laughs) denounce him across the world as saying, oh, he's a Trump-like figure, unless you've been living under a rock for the most recent few weeks. That's a compliment. (laughs) The guy's winning. He's on top. Absolutely loved this. Has he convinced you, Joe? Well, I think he, I think he was being um, undone. He was being undermined by his translator because at the very end he was obviously wanting to say, long live freedom, damn it. But the translator goes, long live freedom, damn it. <laughs> it was like his <laughs> William Wallace <laughs> moment, you like, know. Long live freedom, damn it, where are my car keys? <laughs> and, um, but it's a, it's, a, it's a very interesting thing. I mean, obviously he's great fun. He had me at the sideburns. He's awesome. These guys are amazing to watch. And the, the lesson for the left, though, and again, is that the reason why figures like this emerge, who they hate so much and fear so much, rightly or wrongly, is because they go so far in the opposite direction that it makes someone like Jair Bolsonaro or, um, or Javier Millet uh, or Donald Trump mm. or Brexit look good by comparison. Yeah. And again, th- they just don't get it. You, you know, the, the fascist parties of Europe, of Italy, uh, the Nazi party in Germany rose up as a response not to Western liberal democracy but Mm. to Bolshevism. It rose up in response to the Russian Revolution and people scared witless that what what happened in Russia was going to happen there and that only a strong right-wing party like the fascists or the Nazis could protect them for it. That was a key ingredient to their success and yet the left just never ever learns this and it seems to go further and further in ridiculous directions, which again makes these guys seem less crazy by comparison, but also when they're thinking, if it's two crazy options, you know, well, I don't want X, Y and Z. And you can pick whatever woke policy or crazy policy you like, people losing jobs because of climate change or, you know, suddenly not being able to say what's a man or what's a woman anymore. So... You'd be crazy to write the Argentinian president off, though, as crazy, because if you listen to him speak, mm. I mean, he's brilliant at, like Trump is, he's brilliant at cutting through. He can do all the, you know, made-for-media hus- hustle and, and bluster. But when you listen to him speak, he's actually very intelligent. He mm. backs up all of his arguments with facts and figures. Yeah, he's an economist. And, uh, he's an economist. Yeah, he's no dill at all. 
Absolutely. And something that the mainstream media who hates on these guys, whether it's Trump, whether it's Malay, whether it's Gert Wilders in the Netherlands now, etc. and so on, any right-leaning leader, we've got the, the uh, Italy, what's her name? Georgia yeah. Malone. Mala- yeah. Yes. Um, another legend. What they don't understand is people love authenticity. And the really cool Mm. thing about authenticity is you can't fake it. Mm. It is impossible to fake it. And what people see in these leaders isn't someone who's well-polished and well-spoken like an Obama orator type figure. No, what they see is authenticity. They see people who love their country passionately and genuinely want to cut all the crap out and get their nation back on board. That's what they see in Trump. That's what they saw in Malay, especially now taking on the WEF even. Mm. It's just a beautiful thing to see. And who wouldn't want to take on this place? We already know what they stand for, pushing Agenda 2030 like it's 2029. Yep. 13 minutes to 7. TNT Radio News coming up at 7. Well, that was good, wasn't it? That was a breath, breath of fresh air. Malay, what a guy. <laughs> Damn it, he says. Freedom. Oh, I love it. Yeah, I love it. You know I love it. Uh, freedom and truth. That, they've got to go hand together. Hand in hand, don't they? Truth. Got to have truth. People say love. Love, love without truth is whoredom. That's what I think. It's um, 12 minutes now, 12 minutes too. Now, men and women, are they better off without each other? Let's find out. Men don't want to be husbands. Women don't want to be wives. Men and women married to each other is a disaster because men are not good for women and women are not good to men. It's, they're better off without each other. But husband and wife are inseparable. You can't be a better husband without a wife. So if you don't become a husband and you don't become a wife, you're going to live side by side. You may enjoy many things together. Like the guy says, I love everything about my wife. I just don't know what I need her for. If we want traditional treatment, then we have to be traditional women. And I'm sorry, for a lot of women, that ship has sailed. It sailed. It was it was in your 20s. So a 30-year-old lawyer, why the hell does he have to pay? Again, this is like what women do when they want to shame men. She'll say, uh, you're not marrying the mother of your child. Well, why don't we have the same shaming for women? You didn't wait for marriage for the husband of your children. Oh, look, awfully sorry. I think I had the microphone switched off there for quite a few seconds, so you missed out on that. Um, But that was quite good, that other one, wasn't it? That one we heard before. Um, Men and women are not good for each other. No, but marriage is different. And, um, yeah, so sorry about that. Had the mic off there. It happens happens from time to time. Now, we'll um, move away from all those sorts of things, and we'll go over to skynews.com.au, and we'll have a look at their front page. I'll just do a quick refresh on it just to see if there's anything new that I can bring you. Humiliating catastrophe, the Prime Minister's ambitious housing target, is on shaky ground. The shadow housing minister slammed Labour over what he said was now broken, uh, broken uh, promise to build more than one million new homes across Australia, labelling it as a humili- humiliating 
catastrophe. And in, further in Australia, no fuel. Enormous power outages wreak havoc across Western Australia. Thousands of homes have been left without power across Western Australia and two towns are battling a fuel shortage after a nasty storm caused major damage to power lines. And still in Australia, calls for urgent curfew in Alice Springs after dozens of cars damaged. A Northern Territory MLA has reacted to the news several cars were damaged outside a residential complex in Alice Springs on Thursday, calling the incident one of the outback town's all-time lows. Alexander Downer slams Penny Wong's decision to skip October 7th massacre sites in the south of Israel. Australia's longest-serving foreign minister has criticised Penny Wong's decision not to visit the sites of the October 7th attacks by Hamas, claiming the Labour Party was playing politics. And Dutton declares Prime Minister's leadership over if government abandons tax cuts. Opposition leader Peter Dutton has warned the Prime Minister his leadership is over. Over, he said, in quote-unquote, if Labour abandons uh, stage three tax cuts. Tony Burke, he rejects pleas to intervene in waterfront dispute. Tony Burke has revealed the message he delivered to both the DP World and the Maritime Union of Australia when he met with both parties on Thursday amid calls for ministerial intervention to end the waterfront dispute. And firebrand Argentinian president Javier Millet slams socialism in Davos. The firebrand uh, president of Argentina has taken aim at socialism and state regulations at the World Economic Forum, railing against harmful agendas while praising business people as heroes. Albanese takes the credit for low unemployment and gives it to the Labour Party. Uh, We've got a report there from uh, Paul Murray, who is very good. Let's have a listen to that uh, right now. We're going to go back in the way back machine, but not that far back. In fact, let me take you back to Sunday, 11.30pm, Mornington Peninsula in Victoria. That's when an elderly man was pushed into the water. His crime? Nothing. He was sitting and fishing, yet somebody taped the moment. Oh, it's pretty shocking when people can be heard laughing at the, um, you know, the, the consequences for an old, older person in our community. Okay. You know, there's people we should be looking up to and uh, supporting and helping, and uh, what we're seeing from the youngest in our community or some of the young people in our community is the exact opposite. Now, I think we've got it. Let's show the pictures of exactly what took place here with the elderly man. Sunday night, he was fishing. This first comes out via 3RW and has been uh, around for the past couple of days. Pretty shocking stuff, right? Now, we learned that a 14-year-old has actually now been charged with what you can see happening right now. That goes through a court process, so I have to hold some of my language here. But uh, important to note here too that uh, there's other stories around that suggest that uh, one of the people that has been involved in this situation apparently had been known to police. Well, why? Because this was a situation that had happened back in November. The 35-year-old allegedly confronted a gang of teens after she claims she saw them vandalising a bus parked outside her elderly neighbour's home. Seen them harassing my neighbours and, yeah, I went out and said something and then they jumped me. 
Now, that woman is still living with the consequences of the attack that took place in November that seems to have connections, at least through some of the people, to what I showed you just moments ago about the fishermen at Mornington Peninsula. Remember, we're talking about teenagers here. This is part of the extent of the damage that she received after being set upon. Remember, her only crime was trying to intervene as people were damaging her neighbour's property. Jamie initially didn't want an ambulance, but later she had to be rushed to hospital after losing consciousness. She spent a night at the Alfred where doctors glued her wound shut. I don't go out at night anymore. Um, I'm always watching my back around here. Yeah, poor lady. Now, we learned today that a second teenager has been charged with uh, their connection to the footage that we showed you before in the assault on the elderly man on Sunday night on the Mornington Peninsula. Now, as you know, on this program, there is one form of ism that we often talk about, and it is an ism that not too many people want to talk about, and it is ageism. Now, a version of that is essentially to dehumanise people of a certain age, to poke fun at them or to make the most of the physical advantage that you may well end up having over them. This is a point which is being made by this lady who is uh, one of the chief legal advisors to uh, a group called Senior Rights Victoria. And she says that when it comes to violence against older people, these type of acts and these kinds of manifestations of ageism are really just the tip of the iceberg. There's a lot that goes into the way that we treat our older community members. Respect is one thing, but then there's also a degree of entitlement which comes in when a younger generation, in the way that they're treating elderly family members and loved ones and older people in the community generally. Now again, the matter is before the court, two people have been charged. So I can't speak to the specifics, but I can speak to the general issue, which is why people are concerned about things like youth crime. They're concerned about youth crime, not just because it is so relentless, but in some crimes, certainly the victims are chosen because of their age. As we've talked about before, there are many corporate cultures amongst us who do not value workers of a certain age. And generally in the public discourse, when you endlessly hear a conversation about one age group versus another age group in everything from the financial status that they have to their political views, then there are people amongst us who are trying to, for want of a better term, other people. And by other, I mean Unless it is the group that you identify with or you are from, then everyone else is part of the grand other, the royal they. The they that is causing all the trouble or the one that is making house prices so expensive. So yes, a singular crime is only ever a singular crime, but an overall issue about how we respect or don't respect people of a certain age is something I will never walk away from on discussing as the lead story on this program every night. In part, I believe it's why you come to join us in the numbers that you do on Foxtel, Flash, on Regional, and lots of places, and I very much appreciate it, because we will always talk about you. Now, as we know, we're all living through yet another world of uh, albonomics and another day where the front end of the plane gets richer, those that are paid for by the taxpayer like him, they end up getting their biggest pay rises in 10 years. But the reality is, is that for many people, they get left behind, not just on the question of cost of living, but particularly issues to do with, say, employment. Now, Australia does have a very good unemployment rate, which is still below 4%. 
And the Prime Minister has gone out of his way to pretend that he is the one who is in a small business and hiring the people to work for that small business, because every job that is created is apparently one the Labor Party can take credit for. In our first 18 months, you've had over 620,000 new jobs created on our watch, more than any first-term government in Australian history. So, OK, he's not the first politician to do this, but he promised not to be a politician who would do it like everyone else. And yes, the reality is that the headline figure, as I say, still remains under 4%. But if you are a real human being, you don't care about what the overall figure says. You couldn't care less about how the numbers are pushed this way or that way or owned or otherwise by your average politician. But there was a deeper number that I want to talk about that was inside that steady nothing to see here number. There was, once you put together the number of people who lose a full-time job or a part-time job, 65,000 people who lost their job in Australia in December. Think about the difficulties that everyone has who has a job in trying to make ends meet. Well, imagine what Christmas was like for 65,000 people who did not have a job, one that they had previously had in the previous month or maybe months earlier than that. Now, to give you an idea of just how many people that is and about how unusual such a spike actually is, let me do it via this illustration. You know Optus Stadium in Perth holds everything from the cricket to concerts and the upcoming Elimination Chamber from the WWE? Please send tickets to Sky News. Well, that, of course, is a stadium that still wouldn't have enough seats for everyone who lost a job in December. In fact, you'd need an extra 4,000 of them. What about the Adelaide Oval or Marvel Stadium in Melbourne? Well, you would need 12,000... OK, it's coming up to news time at 7 o'clock, so we'll have to leave Paul there, Paul Murray, uh, and we'll come catch up with that after the news, and then we'll have a look at some other uh, Sky News as well. But right now, we're going to international news with TNT Radio. 88.1 FM, the wireless international news. TNT Radio News. For TNT, this is James O'Neill. On Wednesday night, the United States reportedly initiated a series of strikes targeting what are believed to be militant sites in Yemen. This action occurred just a few hours after the U.S. government designated the Houthi rebel group as a terrorist organization. According to reports from CBS News and the Associated Press, which cite unnamed U.S. officials, the missile strikes were launched from U.S. Navy ships positioned in the Red Sea. The targeted locations were allegedly preparing to conduct attacks. The report suggests that over a dozen sites were impacted by these strikes. These U.S. military operations were conducted in response to an earlier attack on Wednesday by the Houthis against the Jenko Bacardi, a U.S.-owned bulk carrier ship in the Gulf of Aden. A spokesperson for the Houthi group claimed responsibility for the attack, stating that the cargo vessel was directly hit. In the eastern region of Europe, Russian and Ukrainian forces are engaged in intense and bloody combat amidst freezing conditions. Despite the heavy toll of the conflict, its conclusion remains uncertain with those in authority seemingly unsure of the outcome. A critical factor in this situation is the role of the United States, specifically whether it will be able or willing to maintain its direct security assistance to Ukraine. The Biden administration, which had previously committed to supporting Ukraine for as long as necessary, now finds itself in a challenging position due to the depletion of funds allocated for the war. According to White House National Security Council spokesman John Kirby, Russia is closely monitoring the situation, ready to capitalize on any opportunity to advance its objectives. 
Kirby, speaking to the Epoch Times in December of 2023, highlighted the significant risks faced by the Ukrainian armed forces, particularly if foreign aid and assistance were to cease. He noted the immediate threats Ukraine faces from Russia, including aerial attacks and strikes on their energy infrastructure. Kirby also pointed out that Russia is likely preparing to intensify its offensive, especially in the eastern part of Ukraine. Documents disclosed by the House Energy and Commerce Committee have revealed that Ren Lilly, a researcher based in Beijing and a recipient of U.S. federal grants through Echo Health Alliance, a New York-based nonprofit research organization, had already sequenced the COVID-19 virus weeks before the Chinese government officially disclosed such information to the international community. This revelation raises concerns about other potential pandemic-related details that the Chinese government might have concealed. The documents show that Ren Lilly, who continues to be a subgrantee, uploaded data regarding the COVID-19 sequencing to a genetic database run by the U.S. government on December 28, 2019. During this period, the Chinese authorities were still categorizing the illness as an unknown form of pneumonia and imposed restrictions on health workers, warning them against disseminating any information about the disease under the threat of penalties. It was not until January 12th, over two weeks after Ren's submission, that the Chinese government shared the genetic information of the virus with the World Health Organization. Furthermore, it took an additional two days before the authorities acknowledged the virus's capability to transmit from person to person. Denver's primary public hospital, Denver Health, is facing severe financial strain due to the migrant crisis, with the hospital incurring $136 million in unpaid medical treatment costs. Despite a $20 million state funding boost, the hospital reported a $2 million loss in 2022, following a more significant $35 million loss in the previous year. Hospital officials are concerned about the potential impact of another challenging year like the last two. The financial difficulties at Denver Health have escalated alongside the arrival of an unprecedented number of immigrants in the city. Approximately 36,000 immigrants have reached Denver, many transported from Texas, with about half of them choosing to stay. We'll be back with another news break at the top of the next hour. This has been James O'Neill for TNT. From beanies to carry bags and from shoes to caps, browse our shop now at TNTradio.live. 88.1 FM, the wireless weather. All right, let's look at the weather. But before I do, I've just got to put a little checker in there. Otherwise, we're going to be in trouble. So we'll move across now and check out weather from metservice.com and .co.nz. Oh, no, it's .com, metservice.com. And the temperatures right across the entire country are pretty high. The lowest is in Timaru, 13.7 degrees. And the highest is Banks Peninsula with 23.3 degrees right now. So the whole country, even Queenstown, has 17 degrees. Chatham Islands are out there with 18, along with Blenheim. Nelson, 20 for Nelson, and uh, so it's pretty warm right throughout the whole country, up to Marsett and Wellington, they're on 20 degrees as well, Palmerston North 20, New Plymouth, next to Mount Egmont, they're 20 degrees, and Wellington's on 20, uh, sorry, rather, uh, Wellington is on 20, but also Auckland as well, 22 in Wangarei and uh, 20 degrees in Kaitaia. Now, the short forecast for all New Zealand, and uh, for Northland, first of all, Northland to Taranaki, including the Coromandel Peninsula and the Bay of Plenty, Cloudy periods with isolated showers. For Wanganui to Horavanua, also for the central high country, uh, mainly fine today, isolated showers developing this evening, especially north of Wanganui. For Gisborne and Wairarapa, generally fine weather for you today. A Kapiti in Wellington, cloudy periods with isolated showers from this evening. 
For Marlborough and Nelson, mostly cloudy, scattered showers in Nelson. For Buller and Westland, rain with heavy falls, a few thunderstorms possible in southern Westland this evening and also later on tonight. A Canterbury, Otago and uh, Southland, rain about the Canterbury high country. And elsewhere, a few spots of rain becoming scattered during the day, but mainly dry for Canterbury Plains and Christchurch. A little bit further south to Fiordland, we've got rain with some heavy falls, easing to showers later this afternoon. Cloudy periods in the Chatham Islands. The extended forecast for Saturday, oh, we won't do that. I'll do that at 8 o'clock. We'll give you an extended forecast. OK, I'll be back in just a moment. You're listening to Grant Edwards, 88.1 FM, The Wireless, The World at Five. Okay, The World at Five, and we'll go back to Paul Murray and finish off that interview, and it's the Albanese, he takes credit for the low unemployment and gives it to Labour. So we'll just uh, go straight back to that uh, wonderful uh, show. It's about a half-hour segment, I think, that Paul Murray does uh, daily. Uh, let's uh, let's join that again. ...thousand more seats than either of those stadiums to be able to have enough seats for the people who lost their job in one month, December alone, last year. For Suncorp Stadium... Sorry, I can't do that. I have to go back to Sky. ...in Brisbane, where the State of Origin is held and many a rugby league final, Magic Round and Taylor Swift concerts, well, you'd need another 13,000 seats to fit the full 65,000 people who lost their job in December. But the numbers are even worse than, oh, gosh. than that. Because the MCG, the biggest mm-hmm. stadium that we have in the country at 100,000 people, would still need another 6,000 seats for all the people who lost a full-time job in December. The numbers, again, via the Bureau of Statistics today, and the reason you get to the 65,000 number is because you take the full-time number, which has gone down, and then you uh, obviously take away the number that goes up with part-time employment. But I want you to think about that number, that 106,600 people in December got sacked. 106,600 people who had holiday leave, who had sick leave, who had long service leave, who had domestic violence leave, who had all the different benefits that come with a full-time job. 106,000 people who may have been able to take out a home loan, but all of them lost their job. Replaced by what is always the phenomenon in December, which is a whole series of part-time or casual jobs, as more people are needed to help take care of those that are wanting to buy things in the retail sector. But this was not a good day for the Australian economy. Yes, the headline number remains under 4%. And people are now saying that because unemployment is ever so slightly starting to increase in terms of the total number of people, then that means that the cycle of high interest rates is going to come to an end. And as soon as interest rates start to fall, we'll go off to an early election. By the way, mark it in your diaries. The earliest opportunity for that will be August of this year. But I don't care about the headline numbers. I care about the human face of these things. And I also care about the politicians who want to, dare I say, have it both ways, each way, these sorts of things. Now, today, the response from the federal government was that the Prime Minister gave a press conference, but he gave the press conference before the numbers came out. So he was able to talk about the headline number, that, fingers crossed, we'll still have an unemployment rate with a three in front of it, 
and largely the government is tipped off to these sorts of numbers, so they may get a couple of day head start and it's no different than previous governments to know what's coming. But then there's, of course, Jim Chalmers, the man who will claim credit for everything great in the economy and then strangely go silent when things aren't very good. And because he would have had to have given a press conference after the numbers came out, somebody may well have been able to be smart enough to work out that 65,000 people lost their job overall to the Australian economy, but more importantly, the best part of that 106,000 people losing their jobs was more seats than there is in the MCG plus 6,000 more people waiting outside. So did we hear from the Treasurer today? Of course not. We just got a tweet. Now, of course, the assumption would be summer holidays. Come on, Paul, be kind. But he's already been out and about this summer when the inflation numbers were the best they've been for a couple of years. Guess who was more than willing to jump on TV? None other than the great grim Jim Chalmers. He was out there willing to talk up all of the wins, despite the fact that, as we've shown you before, yes, inflation rate is the lowest it's been in two years. However, the reality is that for things like energy, power, all the rest of it, those things are the best part of still 10% or more, double the overall inflation rate. And even the best inflation rate in two years is still way above the Reserve Bank saying it has to be somewhere between 2 and 3%. So again, we get an indication about how the spin works around the Australian economy, which is the Prime Minister, well, he gets to make a comment on the 6pm news, but he doesn't get asked about any of the question of the detail that would show the comment he made on the 6pm news is pretty empty. You then have a Treasurer pretending I'm still on holidays, but selectively will break his holidays when, when either natural disasters like the flooding that took place in Queensland over summer or the inflation numbers are the ones that he wants to tout which reminds me of one of the things that he said when he was applying for the job about the last mob. When things are going well in the economy, he takes all of the credit. And when times are tough in the economy, he takes none of the responsibility. Funny thing that, isn't it? We keep the tapes. And we remember what they said and what was the standard before they became the government and now they are the government. Amazingly, the people that are paid full time to talk about the news, they just... Don't happen to look into the second page of the press release where you can see 106,000 people full-time lost their job in December. Merry Christmas from the Australian government. Now... We'll leave him there. Uh, he's fantastic. Um, love listening to Paul Murray. And you can catch him too at skynews.com.au. Uh, you want to check him out. He's brilliant, absolutely. And get hold of the app as well. That app is brilliant. Uh, you've got the. I just think they are one of the best news organisations in the world. Uh, they really are. Uh, they leave our fake stream media for dead, and uh, to me, they're unbiased. Uh, I love it. Absolutely love everything. Now, let's uh, everything about them. Let's have a look and see what happened on this day. Well, in um, 1845, on January the 19th, if you're having a birthday today. You have a great day, won't you? January the 19th, which reminds me, I've got some birthdays coming up for my children, one on the 28th and another one on the 13th of February. So I'd better get organised, hadn't I, and sort out some pretties because it's very slow in this country. Our, our couriers, our postal system is in tatters. On this day in 1845, Honey Hecker cuts down the British flagstaff again. The first Maori to sign the Treaty of Waitangi Napui chief Honi Heka Pokai soon became disenchanted with the consequences of colonisation. Of course, this is a revision uh, we're looking here. It's uh, New Zealand history. It's a government um, website, and it looks to me like it's a, 
uh, revision. He was just uh, rebellious, um, and I think that um, he had no good reason to be chopping down the flagpole. Very, very naughty. 1967 on this day, 19 people were killed in the strongman mine explosion explosion in Runanga. Uh, they were killed after an explosion ripped through the strongman coal mine there in Rumanga coal mine. An inquiry found that safety regulations had not been followed and a shot hole for a charge had been incorrectly fired. Now let's have a look at that story in a wee bit more depth. So it was 1967 on this day and it was located just north of Greymouth, the Strongman Mine, New Zealand's largest underground coal mine, had an impeccable safety record since its opening in 1939. But in January the 19th, 1967, an explosion sent a fireball through a section of the mine in which 240 men were working at the time. A higher death toll was avoided only because a wet patch in the tunnel near the site of the explosion uh, slowed down the then extinguished and extinguished the fireball. Smoke and fire damp, that's methane gas, methane gas or methane gas produced by coal, made the search for survivors and bodies hazardous. Uh, then, when mixed with a certain proportion of air, fire damp becomes highly explosive. Those involved in the rescue were at constant risk of another explosion. After 15 bodies were recovered on the day of the explosion, it took another three weeks to retrieve two more, and the last two men could not be recovered, and the tunnel was sealed off. Five men involved in the rescue received the British Empire Medal, the the BM, uh, yeah, the BM, the, the British Empire Medal for their bravery. An inquiry into the disaster concluded that at least two mining regulations had been broken. The government was ordered to pay compensation to the families of the victims. New Zealand's worst mining disaster remains the explosion at Bruniton uh, in the nearby Grey Valley in 1896, in which 65 men were killed. And I'm having trouble finding the turntable. I'll be back in a minute. I'm just imagining going to my father. My dad's not a, not a simp, all right? I know a lot of you guys have simp-ass dad that'll just tell you what you want to hear all the time. Not my dad. One time, I was dating a guy my dad didn't like, right? And he literally was like, do you like torture? Like, what's wrong with you? You know what I mean? Like, he wasn't the type to hold back. But all these women have these dads that just treat them like princesses, tell them what they want to hear, and then put in all of these words to take away accountability from choices that we made. And then all the women and the men co-sign this. Yep, they do. Now, let's go back to Radio New Zealand and uh, check out the uh, latest in New Zealand news. rnz.co.nz is where you can find it. And uh, the lead story there is uh, food prices are up another 4.8% for the year. Uh, food prices are 4.8% up, higher than a year ago, according to new figures released by Statistics New Zealand. Other headlines, a call for National Wine Museum, a light white wine read New Zealand's first ever tasting note, penned in 1840. There's an audio there that you can go and have a listen to. Cell phones can have positive use in classroom, according to a principal. A Canterbury principal says cell phones can better educate students on good etiquette around them. Ah, now a giant windmill blows hapu to the United Nations. Hapu in uh, Na Ruahini Iwi, that's a tribe, 
are set to challenge fast-track resources consenting after failing to stop New Zealand's tallest wind power turbines being built in South Taranaki. South Aucklanders react to public transport fare hikes. It's already a tight budget. A woman living with a disability says the fare rise will make her life tougher and also for people like her. Managed retreat on the cards for beach community. Managed retreat is being considered as an option for Canterbury coastal community facing the threat of rising sea levels. More climate change BS. Uh, Health New Zealand's credibility is gone after repeated promises to Reefton, according to a councillor. New Zealand Health West Coast says it intends to restore Reefton's health service, including reopening Zimmerman House Aged Care Wing. The town that has had a gutsful of New Zealand's biggest worm farm. A Kawarau resident has described the smell wafting over the town from a, a nearby worm farm as like pungent raw sewage. We might come back to some of these stories. we just look at the headlines. Potential name change for Tauranga Business. The Tauranga Business is worried that name change to National Park Village will create confusion for its customers. Lifeguards verbally abused and grabbed forcibly by a beachgoer. Members of the public had to step in during an incident at Mount Maunganui Beach yesterday. And concerns for missing Wanganui teen, the Mercedes Kirpi Haddon, she's 17, and she's not been seen since Monday after going missing while visiting relatives, a family member has said. Loved artwork of 20 years found after going missing in flood. The painting, thought to have been the last forever, a lot rather, <laughs> lost forever, has been returned a year after being ripped from its Hawke's Bay home. Uh, yep, yeah. a person has drowned at Northland Beach in Ruakaka. Uh, a um, person was discovered, recovered rather, from the water but could not be revived, according to police. And dirty and messy, unhygienic, the survey finds elderly living in squalor. A retired public health medis- medical uh, specialist says there could be hundreds of people living in severe squalor across the country. A teen has been charged with manslaughter after a fatal crash in Christchurch. The 15-year-old has been charged, and uh, he's. this is after the fatal crash in Christchurch, Selwyn District, last year. The recycling rule change coming for Auckland. Auckland City's curbside recycling is set to change as new national standards come into play. Eight shoplifting arrests in South Auckland this year already. According to police, they said one group alone is believed to have stolen $9,000 worth of items. And a shortage of ADHD medication, Pharmac is now uh, uh, asking health professionals to switch patients to another medication. Bus blocks highway after medical emergency in Wellington. I wonder what that's about. All northbound lanes in Wellington Urban Motorway are open after a Metlink driver had a medical event and stopped on the road. Mm, there's lots of those medical events happening, isn't it, uh, in the last few years since the rollout of the Jovid-19 Jabberoonie. Um And we've had, a, we've had enough. We've had enough water. Kapiti Coast, well-placed in contrast to Wellington's woes. Kapiti District Council is crediting its prudent investment in water meters and infrastructure for keeping taps flowing freely this summer. And Susie Cato, Kim Hill, to host the new Radio New Zealand new podcast and projects uh, announced. Projects, including podcasts hosted by the big names, have 2024 shaping up to be an outstanding year for content. And he could have gone blind, concerns unregulated physician associated, but put patients 
uh, his physician associates may put patients at risk. Uh, overseas trained PAs are being recruited to plug the gaps left by chronic doctor shortages despite being unregulated here. And a ute catches fire on State Highway 3, uh, says the occupants escape without injury. That is a nasty-looking fire, that ute. Now, where's State Highway 3? I'm not sure where that is, but let's find out, shall we? Fire and emergency, says the occupants of the ute, which caught fire south of Wanganui on Thursday. Oh, OK. Escape without injury. Fire crews were called to State Highway 3 near Wangaihu at 8 o'clock yesterday. Images on social media show the front end of the white Ford Ranger fully engulfed ahead of the fire crews arriving on the scene. A truck driver passing by, Aaron Isaac, said he was unable to stop and help uh, people uh, because, uh, help the vehicle, uh, because the vehicle was loaded with hay bales. Oh, yeah. (laughs) And he didn't want that to. Set alight, be set alight. Uh, it reminded him of the importance of carrying fire extinguishers, absolutely, on any vehicle, absolutely. He says all our trucks have them, and it could be something minor. You don't want it to go any bigger uh, all of a sudden, uh, he says, there, and the same for the other road user as well. You might be able to stop and help. For the size of a small thing like under your seat or in your boot, you could have stopped a rather big problem. Every vehicle should really have one in it. I agree. I think that's exactly right, and especially those EVs, which seem to just sort of implode, don't they? Uh, they do. Now, that is uh, that we saw there, so we know where that happened. And uh, Jovid is not, uh, not Labour to blame for NCEA drop, according to ex-minister. Former Education Minister denies previous government is responsible for another drop in NCEA results. Her name is... Uh, does it have her name? What is her name? Uh, provincial results released on Wednesday show rates for students working towards NCA Level 1, 2 and 3 and university entrance are down for the third consecutive year. NZQA Deputy Chief Executive for Assessment Jan Marshall said three years of, pla- of pandemic, I say, related disruption has contributed to the slump. Oh, OK. Labour's Education Spokesperson and former Education Minister Jan Taniti she agreed COVID-19 had a big, big impact on achievement, but the Labour government was absolutely not to blame, as what she says. That's why we had to catch up tutoring sessions, uh, which were really, really successful, and I hope that the result of those are taken into account because we, don't need, uh, we do not need an evidence-based solution for making certain that our young people are staying on track. Tanetti told Morning Report yesterday that she was... Uh, the coalition government and the government uh, continued to catch up tutoring lessons and Labour was prepared to support it in uh, turning NCA results around. I don't know how Labour could do that when they're not in power, but that's what they say. Uh, Yeah, that's what they say. It's very disappointing, I think. Education Minister Erica Stanford, she declined Morning Report's request for an interview, probably just getting to grips with the... um, with how it's all going. Now, the Snapper card scam circulating on social media. Metlink warns against clicking on any links in the scam posts. Uh, a bid to keep Christchurch light rail hopes alive, despite the axing of Auckland's plans, Greater Christchurch Councils are hoping to keep their proposals going. It's 26 minutes past seven. 
And uh, we're just moving right along there. And concerns for small business during the Waikanae Bridge Detour. This is something I wanted to tell you about yesterday. Cavity Coast residents are outraged by a lengthy road detour, with some planning to protest it. Cavity Coast residents are outraged by... Oh, they've just repeated it. There we are. We know that um, there's been a hit and bump. <laughs> Former National Party leader is in hospital after an e-scooter uh, accident. Auckland Business Chamber Chief Executive Simon Bridges has been left with a broken wrist and a badly grazed face. And how to treat blue bottle uh, jellyfish stings. Surf Life Saving is urging beachgoers to be aware about how to treat jellyfish stings after clubs across the country have reported an increasing number of incidents. And of course we have uh, that fellow. And I'll tell you what, I, was, I sort of slagged off the MMS uh, this is a man who he seized upon the tragedy of the Jovid pandemic as a money-making opportunity by selling bleach as a cure for the so-called virus, making his company more than $100,000 during the international event. He has been sent to jail, Hamilton man. And uh, I had, a, had some people visit me yesterday here at the farm, and uh, one lady said that it is actually really good. It is a very curative properties. Uh, bleach, would you believe? It's basically just chlorine. And um, I don't think it's Janola because that's got other additives in it. But it's all to do with dosage, as you said. And um, they've had incredibly good results with it. MMS, it's called. So I might have to take it back, what I said. I have to do more research on it because in homeopathy, uh, I mean, we dish out all sorts of remedies. Of course, you would argue that there's nobody home. It's below Avogadro's number. But that doesn't seem to... Um, affect the results and you can uh, take out the placebo effect because we give it to animals farm animals and uh, they are they don't suffer from the placebo effect like we do and there's been trials done in the UK with that uh, wonderful vet over there Christopher Day and um, they and others and they've found that uh, they've done very well farmers have done extremely well using a prepared remedy uh, as a plus uh, what they call a, um, a prophylactic uh, to for uh, mastitis. Now, mastitis can really affect your bottom line. And uh, so the usual process using the pharmaceutical drugs is to stop milking that particular cow that's come up with a high cell count and to give them some antibiotics until it's all passed. Then they just milk off that cow, but they don't include that in the vat for the town supply or wherever else it's going. But with homeopathy, you can continue to milk the cow and um, by giving them, uh, in fact, you have very few cases. In one study that I was uh, watching on a video, and it came out years ago, I think back in the 80s, when I was first be becoming interested, I don't know, the 90s I saw it, but this happened, I think, in the late 80s, this trial. Uh, and this fellow found it, this far farmers were saying it was very good. And here in New Zealand, a lot of dairy farms are using homeopathic methods. And, uh, you know, those people, are they're really interested in the bottom line. They do everything they can to make sure that uh, they are increasing that uh, butterfat content uh, content on an annual basis. So they wouldn't be fiddling around with homeopathy if it wasn't working for them, and they certainly are. And Christopher Day, yep, wonderful man, and um, he said it was just a slippery slope for him once he got started with it, And but he found that he was actually uh, be able to, to do better using homeopathic uh, medicines. He said back then, not all, but I think it, now that he would pretty much say, yeah, all, you can treat them uh, with homeopathic medicines. Of course, the pharmaceutical industry, they're out there slagging it off 
uh, saying it's rubbish. It's like the the more whiskey you drink, the less drunk you get. But they always forget that it's more than a dilution. It's a dilution plus a cushion. And there's something about hammering that bottle uh, on a on an old Bible or something, make sure it's a King James, <laughs> slamming it down. It's called succussion, where you're actually shocking the, the liquid that's in there, and that changes the remedy. And uh, then you take one drop of that with uh, 100 drops of water, and you succuss that, and that's how they potentize remedies. And uh, it's quite interesting. And there's volumes of books uh, in the United Kingdom and also in Europe, volumes of books on uh, with doctors and their proper doctors that have that have been using homeopathic remedies for at least the last 200 years. And there was a Scottish doctor, he said, I was absolutely amazed at the volumes of really good books on, um, you know, Materia Medicas and um, case studies of patients. He was uh, absolutely blown away. And also the royal family have gotten behind homeopathy and uh, you've got some homeopathic hospitals there, I think, in London. Uh, and they are the patron, the royal family are the patrons of those. So if it wasn't for the royal family in the UK, homeopathy would not be on the NHS. And uh, so here in this country, we're completely ruled by the pharmaceutical industry. Uh, we had our own homeopathic hospital in Princess Street in Auckland, and that was shut down. Uh, purchased The land was purchased by the pharmaceutical company, and that wonderful hospital with an incredible a success rate, nobody died, people went there, they were actually cured, a word that you're not allowed to say. In fact, I had a um, a video taken down off YouTube yesterday, off the um, Liberty NZ YouTube channel, just for having um, repeating this article that I'm looking at here, uh, the man who sold bleach as a cure for COVID-19, jailed. And I think it was just the heading alone, the AI took it down, and I'm in dispute with it, because all I'm doing is reading a story, about it, and uh, but they took it down anyway. So they, uh, it's pretty weird, isn't it? Pretty weird. So that we we cannot, we don't have freedom of of expression here in New Zealand, even though, um, even though uh, every Western country in the world have laws protecting freedom of expression in any form, uh, and yet we're seeing social media companies riding roughshod over those rights. Twenty eight minutes to eight, and uh, we're back with uh, Radio New Zealand, RNZ.co.nz. And we're talking about weather and the emergency services. Firefighters succeed in containing a scrub fire. They've now contained that scrub fire in four hectares of grass and scrub near Lake Benmore in the Waitaki area in Otago. Ex-Greens defend party as questions arise over Garaman Saga. Former MPs have gone to the defence of the party over its handling of Golra's Garamans, her fall from grace. More stories. Disappointing frustration as EV road user charges are announced. The decision, alongside axing the clean green discount, will seriously hit sales in industry, apparently, according to an industry group. There's an audio there. Road user charges are to, excuse me, uh, they are to extend to EV plug-ins, hybrids, uh, owners of light vehicles, electric vehicles, and plug-in hybrids will have to pay road user charges from the 1st of April this year, according to the government. They have announced that. And national-led government officially, nope. So that's uh, we've got to right to the end of the news there. We'll move across to News Hub now. I'll just do a quick refresh and see if there's anything new just come to light. 
uh, we've got uh, unacceptable housing minister, um, unacceptable, he says. Housing minister cracks down on empty public homes. Now, that's Chris Bishop. Uh, he says the government cracking down on unacceptable number of vacant uh, housing New Zealand homes. Of course, they didn't say that, did they? They said some Maori word. I don't know why. We were speaking in English here. If you want to, if you want to start talking Maori, write the whole thing in Maori. That's what you want to do. Housing Minister Chris Bishop says it's unacceptable the number of vacant housing New Zealand homes around the country. There are about three thousand nine hundred unoccupied public homes, or five percent. He said in a statement on Thursday, it's simply not okay that 786, almost 20% of the new public homes delivered to Housing New Zealand, homes and communities between June 2020 and October 2023 were vacant as of October 31st, 2023. Almost 300 new homes were empty for four months or more, he added. The minister has since laid out his expectation in a letter to the board of Housing New Zealand requesting social homes are not left empty for a day longer than absolutely necessary. Bishop says, while I understand there are many instances where, for valid reasons, it takes time to fill a new home, the time frames identified in this response are well beyond that what I consider appropriate. Chief Executive of Housing New Zealand, Andrew McKenzie, told NewsHub the agency shares the Minister's wishes for new public housing to be tenanted as soon as possible. Bishop goes on, uh, Mackenzie goes on to say that we are working on ways that we can reduce the time frame that newly built homes are vacant. He's, uh, he said Housing New Zealand staff are proud, oh, blah, blah. So he's just like, you know, so you're failing, Mackenzie. Uh, he says that homes become available, staff carefully match them to the right customer. It's just not acceptable. They've got to get onto it uh, because it's just not Good enough. Former Prime Minister Sir Bill English is leading an independent review into Housing New Zealand, uh, those uh, whose findings will be sent to the government in late March. A news hub has contacted Labour for comment. However, it doesn't sound like they're getting much from them. Uh, In Wellington, need to lighten our belt, or tighten rather tighten our belt. Wellington prepares for possible state of emergency amid a water crisis. Uh, The story by Alexa Cook who's very good, just come out. Emergency services, councils and fire uh, defence in Wellington are preparing for a possible state of emergency over the region's water crisis. There's a 23% chance of the city going into level 4 restrictions, which has never happened before. To prepare for the possibility, Wellington Water is uh, uh, has asked a drinking water regulator Tau, what are they called? What's this? Tau Mata Arowai. What is that? Is that a person? Or what? I don't know. I don't know. It's driving me crazy. Uh, to extend its consent so it can draw more water from rivers and aquifers to top up reserves. Wellington Water has asked if we could consider using the emergency powers available to us under the Water Services Act 2021, specifically letting them take more water than their current resource consents allow. This is under consideration. Taumato Arawai's Head of Regulation, Steve Taylor, said in a statement, the Wellington region is losing 45% of its water supply through leaks. And I think there's about last week we reported that there were, this is me, a reporter, I found this information, 3,050 leaks that the government council, their government, a local body, responsible for, and they haven't been fixed. There's water flowing 
all over the cobblestones in Wellington. And people are a bit upset about it. Uh, so that's not good. So 45% of, uh, of its water supply through leaks, while Auckland is losing 13%, and that's unacceptable as well. Uh, this has led to a level two water restrictions for Wellington City, Porirua, and also the Hutt Valley. However, with uh, usage on the rise due to hot water and hot weather, rather, and people returning to work, authorities are planning for the worst case scenario level four restrictions. Just get out there. You don't need restrictions. You don't need to restrict us, you commies, you fascists. Don't do that. Fix your bloody leaks. That's number one. And what's the other thing you need to do? Go and just suck some more water out of some rivers. Forget about your resource consent. Just get it done. Should be signed off instantly, just like that. Now, for it to get back to the point, plans would have to be maxed out, according to Charles Baker, Wellington Water Regulator Services Manager. Baker says that we have uh, a little bit. We're a little bit vulnerable than if there is a if there's a sudden outage, and we could have an impact on our drinking water system. Uh, that's not likely, he says. In the case of the region progressing to level four, Wellington Water has meeting, been meeting with Fire and Emergency New Zealand Police as well, and the Department of Internal Affairs, local council, and also civil defence. They discuss contingency plans. There have been meetings, apparently, and uh, Banks, he, he told uh, News Hub. However, he wants to reassure the public there still be water coming out of the taps on level four. There's always enough. This level four, this level bullshit. Just fix your leaks and get suck some water from one of the rivers. We've got plenty of water. We've had stacks of rain, and there's no excuse for it. So that's Grant's piece on it. Yeah, that's me. That's what I reckon. Now um, we'll move over to. We've got they've got the Aussie cracks down on the tobacco black market uh, turf wars. They escalate. Well, that interests me uh, because I get a bit of tobacco from a friend of mine that uh, grows it. And um, I love I love his cigarette every now and then, and uh, it's just far too. It's just you know what's forcing this, and it's probably going to happen over there as well. They just want to restrict. They don't care about your health. They don't give a damn. They want you to die, so they don't have to pay you. They want you to die. That's all part of part of uh, the the big agenda. And if and really, uh, one hundred and forty dollars for a for a fifty grams of tobacco, so you can have a have a smoke every now and then, which you're entitled to. The big thing is they don't. They want to stop you. They want to regulate what you put in your body. What you do with your body doesn't interfere with anybody else. People say, oh, well, you, it causes you know, a big expense. It's an expense on the, on the collective. It's an expense on, on the rest of us, the collective, as Luxon would say, the World Economic Forum boy. But um, that's what we pay. That's the price we pay when we live in a democracy, a constitutional democracy. That uh, There are some other people out there that will be doing stupid things that we have to pay for with ACC. And if we want to have a cigarette or a cigar or a drink, we should be allowed to, so long as our activities don't harm other people. And if it costs other people a wee bit in the pocket, well, then so be it. But I tell you what, smokers, they fully paid for, pay for themselves. $144 or something like 137 to 145 bucks for 50 grams of tobacco is crazy, and it's all government tax, and we're not all about about 60 or 70% of it's government tax. You used to be able to buy 50 grams for, I don't know, 30 bucks. It wasn't that long ago. And even 10 years ago, it was like $50. And now at $140, it's just absolutely unacceptable. And that's why we've got people that are growing their own and learning how to do it. And it's very easy to do. You just go on YouTube and you can find out exactly how to grow it. You can find out how to um, um, 
I think you're allowed 16 kgs or something like that a year for personal use. It wouldn't be kgs, would it? I think so. Something like that. Um, you can find out how to blend it and make your jolly, make your own tobacco. And that's what I think we should all be doing anyway. However, uh, we're being for- some of us now are being forced into this position where we're not going to blim or buy four packets of, of tobacco and it's costing us $600. It's just absolutely ridiculous. And so people should be allowed to put whatever they like. It's all about them having control over what you do with your body. And they say it's for the collective. But really, individual rights, they trump the collective. Australia's illegal tobacco. Oh, they've just popped to a new story. Hang on, I'll just go back to that one. Now, I have to get rid of it. This is Emma Cropper. She has not come a cropper. She's done a good job here. Let's see how she goes with this. Because there's money to be made. I mean, a guy can sell a packet of um, 50 grams for 50 bucks and he's making really good money. And everyone's happy to pay for it, even if it's not sort of chopped up as finely as normal tobacco that you buy in the shop. Because unless you have a proper industrial equipment, you can never get that, you know, that lovely sort of maiden's hair type, (laughs) maiden's hair type um, finish. It looks more like pipe tobacco or cigar tobacco. But anyway, so apparently Australia's tobacco turf war has escalated. Gangs are using youths to steal tobacco. Oh, I see. It's a wee bit different to what I was thinking. And firebomb stores. And then now the government is moving to fast track down on the black market. Ah. It's announced that uh, Australian $180 million fund to stop cigarettes being smuggled through the border as well. Like a bomb, explosions continuously puncture Melbourne's night sky. Overnight on Thursday, as flames engulfed a small neighbourhood tobacco store, each blast caused debris to, uh, to fire everywhere, debris to fly everywhere. It was like going, uh, it was like going on for like minutes and minutes, said one woman near the scene. It's part of a string of suspected arson attacks on the city fueled by rival underworld gangs battling to control the lucrative tobacco black market. In one case, they used fireworks to try to gain access to a shop. They failed, so the four men trying to break in uh, through a fiery missile that didn't make it either. They tried to light fabric on fire, which fails too, and then a quick kick, but the firebomb still doesn't explode. A quick kick. The issue was escalated in recent months. Australian authorities call it earn to b- or burn, with gangs target small, they target small tobacco stores and force them to either sell their smuggled smokes or to go uh, up in flames. Oh, is that what it's about? Uh, it's because Australia is one of the most expensive countries to be a smoker. Uh, you've got a pack of um, costs about $50, and then you've just got $20 on the black market. Oh, I see. So that's, well, you know, it's the same here, isn't it? Government's charging through, because of the government taxes. It's um, 140 bucks for a packet of just tobacco, straight tobacco, and uh, you can buy it on, I, don't, I wouldn't call it the black market, just buy it off a mate who grows it and, you know, sells it to some friends, give them, so you've got to have some money for doing all that work, there's a, there's a lot of work involved. And I just think it's disgraceful that they can tell us what we can do, what we can put in our bodies. It's just not on, and we just cannot allow this to continue and it's all about the government making money anyway because they rake a huge amount of tax off it so I'd, I'm really against that I think if you want to grow your own dope I don't agree with smoking dope because I know the side effects from it are horrendous being a homeopath but uh, tobacco uh, we actually use both tobacco and uh, cannabis 
cannabis indigo actually, in minute tiny doses below Avogadro's number to treat patients. But uh, I, I like to have a cigarette. And, uh, and if I want to, I jolly well will. And I won't have anybody tell me what I can do with my own body. I'll do what I like. Thank you very much. And more of us need to stand up to these regulations. So this one's a wee bit different in Australia where they've got uh, you know, criminal gangs getting involved and uh, saying they want you, you know, you've got to take our cigarettes even though they're on the black market, they've been stolen and then they sell them uh, to them and if they don't, they get the shot firebomb. So that's what that's about. So that's uh, it's a little bit different. And so I went into that story there not knowing fully what it was about. Now, um, politicians aren't front and centre. Why Luxon isn't attending the Hui? Oh, I thought he was attending. That's uh, the Hui with the Maori King. Uh, I thought he would be, uh, but he's not. He is not. Okay, we'll have a wee bit of a rest, and then we'll come back with stuff and see what they've got for us. And uh, then we might look at some international news as well. Here's um, here's a a, a really just a nice uh, from the from the history of uh, sound files. Have a listen to this. This is a Muldoon on Winston Peters back in the day. I believe that when Peters has got what it takes, uh, and uh, that means that um, he does his homework. When he gets it clear in his mind, he says it, and that's important in politics. And uh, the people respond and they say, I like that bloke because he says what he thinks. Are you saying that there's a bit of uh, Rob Muldoon in there? Well, I didn't say that. You said it. <laughs> there we are. I still I love that guy, Rob Muldoon. Ah, oh, well, poor old chap. Anyway, let's um, let's move across now. If you want to find the link to what I'm going to play for you next, I'm just going to play you an extract from the movie by Mickey Willis. He's the writer and director, and he's a very good documentary filmmaker. I think he used to do videos as well. He he was a leftist. He was with the, with the Bernie Sanders Sanders um, campaign, and then all of a sudden he just woke up and he realised that oh, he was on the wrong side. Playing for the wrong side. And uh, so this is an extract from Mickey Willis's movie, The Great Awakening. You can find the link to that on our website, thewireless.nz. Uh, I hope you've enjoyed this. Very interesting about the Nazis. I think you'll find that Klaus Schwab, uh, he's a descendant of a Nazi, and there's a lot of them. And their plan for us is not good. This was the 75th anniversary of the Nuremberg Code. It took place in the midst of the COVID pandemic. These past two years and a half have been especially stressful as painful memories were rekindled. In 1941, my family was forced from our home in Romania to Ukraine. We were herded into a concentration camp, essentially left to starve. Death was everywhere. Death was the cloud above us. My father died at the camp of typhus, an infectious disease that was rampant in all the concentration camps and ghettos for lack of any sanitary conditions. In 1944, as the final solution was being aggressively implemented, Romania dislodged from its alliance with Nazi Germany, allowed several hundred orphan Jewish children to return to Romania 
if they had a relative there. Although I was not an orphan, my mother lied to save my life. I boarded a cattle car train, the very same train that continued to bring Jews to the death camps. The Holocaust did not begin in the gas chambers of Auschwitz or Treblinka. The Holocaust was preceded by nine years of incremental restrictions on personal freedom and the suspension of legal rights, civil rights, and essentially human rights. The stage was set by fear-mongering and hate-mongering propaganda, a series of humiliating, discriminatory government edicts demonized Jews as spreaders of disease. We were compared to lice. The real viral disease that infected Nazi Germany was eugenics. Eugenics is the elitist ideology at the root of all genocides. It was embraced by the academic, the medical establishment, as well as the judiciary, both in Germany and the United States. Eugenicists justify social and economic inequality. They legitimize discrimination, apartheid, sterilization, euthanasia, and genocide. The Nazis called it ethnic cleansing to protect the gene pool. Medicine was perverted from its healing mission and was weaponized. First, it was to control reproduction through forced sterilization, and then it was to eliminate those deemed to be subhuman, untermenschen. The first victims of medical murder were 1,000 German infants and toddlers under the age of three. The murderous operation was expanded to an estimated 10,000 children, German children, under the age of 17. The next victims were the mentally ill, followed by the elderly in nursing homes. All of these human beings were condemned as worthless eaters. Under Operation T4, designated hospitals were turned into killing centers where various extermination methods were tested, including Zyklone B, the gas that was used in the gas chambers. They used exhaust, injections. Some of the children were starved to death so that doctors could record how long it takes a child to die when denied nutrition. We're talking about inculcating sadism. The objective of the final solution was the annihilation of the entire European Jewish population, which at the time was 11 million. The Nazis enacted discriminatory laws. They utilized modern technology, low-cost industrial methods, an efficient transportation system, and a highly trained bureaucracy that coordinated 
the industrial genocidal process. Hitler had IBM. That was the technology. IBM was the most advanced at the time, and they had punch card system. So it was pretty clumsy compared to the computer today. However, it was the weapon that Hitler needed to identify every Jew and to have all the information about each one so that they could then deport them, they could divest them of all their property. The idea was an industrial, efficient genocide. The purpose of Holocaust memorials is to warn and inform future generations about how an enlightened, civilized society can be transformed into a genocidal universe ruled by absolute moral depravity. If we are to avert another Holocaust, we must identify ominous current parallels before they poison the fabric of society. Since the Nazi era, the study of history and most of the humanities, including philosophy, religion, and ethics, have been overshadowed by an emphasis on utilitarian science and technology. You're listening to Grant Edwards, 88.1 FM, The Wireless, The World at Five. Okay, we've got uh, news coming up in about four minutes. Uh, how about a country song? Ah, yeah, what do you say? What about um, Kelsey Ballerini? I like her. She's pretty good. Uh, let me see if I can find a nice one from her. Kelly Pickler. Uh, muscle Memory. How about that? That'll take us uh, pretty close to news time. This is Kelsey Ballerini.
back every time we let ourselves go back down that road. Something I can't control comes over me. My hands know just where my heat is. My soul memory. Yeah, my body won't forget it. Our history we fall back so easily. It's my soul memory. When it comes to you and me, it's practiced on perfectly. Yeah, I know just what you mean. Wonderful. Kelsey Ballerini, that's her name, Muscle Memory, and it's just one and a half minutes away from news time at 8 o'clock with TNT Radio. Uh, in the meantime, I was just looking at a story here um, from the New Zealand Herald sent to me last night. Some updates. A serving inmate who attacked former real estate agent Aaron Drever, he was very successful too. Uh, this was in the prison kitchen, caused horrific facial injuries to the former real estate agent. He's been convicted over the assault and could face up to 14 additional years in jail as he's sentenced next week. Wayne Lesipa, who's 36, he slashed open Drever's face with a metal hook following an altercation at Northland Regional Corrections Facility in November last year. Corrections later admitted that Lesipa had been involved in another violent incident two weeks earlier and should not have been working in the prison kitchen when the second attack took place. The department launched a review into the internal failure in a bid to prevent such situations happening again. So now we will go over to news with TNT Radio. 88.1 FM, the wireless international news. For TNT, this is James O'Neill. Last week, U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken communicated to Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu that Israel cannot achieve a decisive victory over Hamas through military means alone emphasizing there is no military solution and suggesting the need for Israel to consider the establishment of a Palestinian state. Netanyahu, however, reportedly dismissed this idea. The Biden administration is reportedly preparing for potential future changes in the Israeli government by engaging with other Israeli leaders and members of civil society. In this context, Blinken has held individual meetings with members of Netanyahu's war cabinet, as well as with other key Israeli figures, including Yair Lapid, the opposition leader and former prime minister. Despite Blinken's diplomatic efforts, he faces significant challenges. Firstly, there's a prevailing belief among Israelis that they can effectively win the conflict with Hamas. Secondly, there's a perception that Palestinians prioritize the destruction of Israel over the establishment of their own state casting doubt on the viability of a future Palestinian state. The German parliament has decisively voted against a motion to supply Taurus cruise missiles to Ukraine, representing a significant setback for those advocating the provisions of longer-range weaponry for Kiev in its conflict with Russia. The proposal was defeated in a parliamentary vote on Wednesday evening, with a wide margin of 485 against and 178 in favor. Notably, only two members of the Bundestag, outside the opposition CDU-CSU faction, supported the motion. The ultimate decision regarding the dispatch of Taurus missiles to Ukraine rests with Chancellor Olaf Scholz. Scholz has previously expressed reluctance to send such aid, citing concerns it could escalate the conflict by enabling Ukraine to target more Russian territory. 
Marie-Agnes Stack-Zimmerman, the chairwoman of the Bundestag Defense Committee, attributed the defeat of the resolution to political maneuvering. She criticized the CDU-CSU for allegedly attempting to use the missile proposal as part of a broader debate on the state of Germany's military, accusing them of engaging in a clumsy PR stunt. The Russian Defense Ministry has reported intercepting a Ukrainian drone near the St. Petersburg area, marking what appears to be the first such incident in the vicinity of this northern Russian city. Local media speculated that the drone might have been targeting an oil terminal. In a statement issued in the early hours of Thursday, the ministry described this as a thwarted terrorist drone attack by the Kyiv regime on unspecified facilities in Russia. Additionally, the statement mentioned that an unmanned aircraft was taken down over the Moscow region. Moscow's Mayor Sergei Sobyanin confirmed that a drone was destroyed on the southern outskirts of the capital, adding there was no casualties or damage based on preliminary information. Furthermore, the Defense Ministry revealed that a second drone was intercepted over the Leningrad region, though no additional details were provided. The Shot Telegram channel reported that the drone targeting St. Petersburg was laden with three kilograms of explosives and aimed at an oil base in the city. The channel claimed the fragments of the drone were discovered at the St. Petersburg Crude Oil Loading Terminal Stock Company, with no reported casualties or damage. The drone was described as a propeller-driven aircraft with a 6-meter wingspan, suggesting its debris could be scattered across the Gulf of Finland. Fox News contributor and Washington Times opinion editor Charlie Hurd on Wednesday told Fox News host Sean Hannity why Democrats are terrified of facing Donald Trump. Really interesting that, that Democrats seem to have a better grasp of the real truth here, which is Donald Trump is the most formidable candidate who could face Donald Trump, uh, Joe Biden in November. He can prosecute the case against Joe Biden better than anybody, and Democrats are terrified of facing Donald Trump. We'll be back with another news break at the top of the next hour. This has been James O'Neill for TNT. With your help, we can continue to fight for freedom, reach new audiences, and bring important information to you're listening to Grant Edwards, 88.1 FM, The Wireless, The World at Five.